Hi, and welcome to A Peek Beneath the Veil, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons homebrew campaign, courtesy of Tabletop Notch. I am happy to tell you that A Peek Beneath the Veil goes live every Sunday at 7pm Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopnotch. Already aired episodes can be found on both our Twitch and YouTube channels. You can also catch those episodes right here in podcast form, updated every Tuesday, which is new for us and also pretty cool. But let's get down to business. It is time for Orba to take you to Antisuyu to enjoy this chapter of A Peak Beneath the Veil. There we go. <gasps> Welcome back, everybody. Oh. <laughs> wow. Welcome back to Tabletop Notch. We're thrilled to be back in the studio. We hope everybody's been well and safe. Um, one thing that we want to say right off the bat, we know that because of the situation that we're in, playing with masks is very difficult. Um, if you want to read a little more about our statement that we have that talks about the precautions that we take, you could probably already see a couple of them, um, that the uh, sort of clear plastic barriers between some of the players um, type exclamation point COVID, C-O-V-I-D, into the chat, and it sort of runs down all the things, all the precautions we've taken, all the sort of measures we've taken to make sure that we can play safely, but still have a good time, play the campaign that we want to play. Yeah. Um, we're thrilled to be back at it. Uh, we're doing a special double episode today that sort of takes a look back into, into the past before we... We didn't want to go right back into where we were when we when we left off, so we have a little sort of leeway before we get there. Um, anything people want to say? Welcome back. Welcome, <laughs> Welcome back. Happy National Ice Cream Day. Happy oh, National yeah. Ice Cream Day. Of course, it breaks the ice. Let's address that right away. <laughs> Well, I no, uh, also just a special thank you to everybody who watched us while we were being virtual and distant in our homes. It was just really lovely to be able to keep making the show that we like in some capacity uh, and have people enjoying it. So Absolutely. thanks for everybody. Yeah, thank you for your everybody. continued support, seriously. And um, we're thrilled to be back here. Hopefully we'll continue to be here and and we'll just uh, see how the campaign goes. Yeah. <laughs> and happy birthday, Jordan, on Wednesday. Yes. Uh, and happy birthday, Comrade Tortell, from last Tuesday. That's right. Oh. Last Monday. Monday. Was Comrade Tortell's go. birthday. So, yay July, birthdays. July birthday babies. Um, we are going to roll the intro, oh. as we always do. And then we'll first be going into a section, as I mentioned before, that's called Tabletop Notch Genesis. We're going to take a little peek at each person's sort of days slash week leading up to the moment of uh, sort of joining the group as a whole. Um, so we'll be a little sort of look back. In the part in the middle, we'll have a little recap of, very quick hits recap of the major, major events that led us to the point where we are in the campaign. And then we'll roll back into the campaign. I should also mention there will be three breaks because of our double sort of stream. We're going to have a 20-minute break after about an hour and a half. We'll play for about an hour and a half again. Uh, a longer break, that's sort of our dinner break at around 7-ish. It's going to be no, not perfect. And then another break about an hour and a half into that second portion. So there will be a couple breaks along the way uh, just to let everybody breathe and relax and eat and We'll, uh, and then we'll dive back in. Yeah. Nice. All right, everybody. Without further ado, roll that, roll that <laughs> intro. Hope this button will work.
prior to chapter one, an arranged carriage. The group had not yet found their footing as a unit in the wake of Jillian's disappearance. Before there were promised rewards, valuable leads, and handshake agreements, there were five displaced individuals. Five paths yet to converge that would walk the razor's edge, of which the smallest deviation might fundamentally reshape the party as we know it. Look at the Goliath, whose deific struggles boiled over in Mukmu in the Shaki Mountains. Is he a force to be reckoned with, or a shadow of his former self walking on eggshells beneath omniscient eyes? We travel back now, back before the words that define this journey were spoken. Back before you will have your vicious weapon again. Back before do not assume to volunteer me. We travel back now to Graven's genesis of a peak beneath the veil. Better faith than sorry. <clears throat> With the evening creeping in, the already varied colorations of the sky is further augmented by the rays of light that stream through stained glass windows. Vibrant geometric shapes stretched across a white marble floor that provides a steady base like a painter's canvas. And a quiet trickle can be heard coming from the room's central fountain, its water swirling slowly in the basin at a measured pace until a hand plunges delicately in and disrupts its natural flow. The palm is held just below the surface in a way that superimposes the colored light against the skin. A prismatic gauntlet, made not to protect against physical harm, but to ward off thoughts of despair. The hand rises, and as the water drips off, its hue shifts to a dull gray. Deep creases along the joints that seem to radiate outward from extensive, hardened scar tissue. You hear a bit of creaking from the southern set of double doors and some hushed voices. The door's been pushed just slightly ajar as a kind of nudge from the other side as someone prepares for entry. A few parting words kept politely out of earshot. The murmurs continue for a moment and you take a slow, controlled breath in anticipation. You can hear the voices a little bit back and forth. As they kind of leap through the small crack, crevice in the door, they kind of echo around the room, but you can't quite hear them, just a little bit of the sound kind of bouncing around in this open space. And after a little bit, a man passes through the door. He closes it gently behind him. He's likely no older than 40, with a thin, almost sheer brown robe that's layered over a black tunic and pants cinched just above the knee. He has a white headband that's pulled tight across his forehead, and he's doing a pretty admirable job hiding his surprise at the presence of a Goliath in his humble town. You gather that this must be Curate Andrew Teague, the man whose house of worship you were directed to by the young aide Holland. The curates are not beholden to one particular god, a specific religion or a traditional dogma, rather they're serving as a spiritual advisor. And they're found most frequently in small communities that have diverse populations that usually pop up out of need, a mining community, a fishing community that brings together people from all different areas and backgrounds. 
He pauses for a moment. And then he begins a slow, kind of meandering, easy walk towards you as he speaks. I am sorry to keep you waiting. Hognock numbers less than 200, so when one of our dignitaries passes, it has a substantial effect on the community. Quite all right. He looks around. I am glad they directed you to wait in this room. It is selfishly my favorite. I worked on it for years. What was supposed to be just a window turned into a wall, which turned into an entire room. Sometimes when a passion catches hold of you, you can't stop until you're done. I'm sure you know what that's like. And he kind of gets up to you at this point. And there's a few kind of stools and chairs that have been around. He kind of grabs the back of one. Do you mind if I sit? I've been standing for most of the day. Politely nods. He sits across from you. And he kind of studies you for a little bit. Not in kind of an intrusive way. Just in a curious kind of, you know, he waits for a moment to see if kind of you'll speak first. He waits for a moment to see if, you know, you make a move, take anything out, show anything kind of sit there, opposite him, the two of you. Holland is a funny boy. He maintains excellent spirits despite his predicament. He is a fighter. He said that you asked him if there were any religious scholars that you could consult with. I don't know if I fit that description, but I'm happy to help any way I can. If I understand correctly, you told Freya, the woman that you spoke with when you arrived, that specifics would be difficult to discuss because of who might be listening. But it, something recently has thrown your life out of balance. Would that be correct to say? This is not uncommon. You should not feel alone in this. Perhaps I could talk for a bit, and you could chime in whenever you like, even though I realize you're limited in what you can or cannot say. How does that sound to you? Do you have a name I can address you by, or if that poses a risk, a made-up name that you just like the sound of? And he crosses one of his legs, kind of ankle over the other, and hands in his lap. Like most relationships, a healthy devotion is all about give and take. Those who tend to feel the most fulfilled are those who give, and those who take in equal measure. But what you take, and what you give, are often very different depending on your deity or your religious background. A benevolent God might ask for your love and your praise, and in exchange you're given blessings and guidance. An ambivalent God might ask for your faith and your patience, and in exchange you're given autonomy, willpower. 
and vengeful gods, and for a moment you feel as if the two of you kind of connect eyes, and he kind of shifts away briefly, but it seems like he sort of made slightly heavier eye contact at that moment. Might ask for your loyalty and your respect, and in exchange you're given power and purpose. During this time that you felt out of balance, have you been able to communicate with your god or gods, whether that's through spoken words or visions, any other manner? I wonder if you'd like to join me for a kind of ritual. It's not a religious one, just a way to clear your mind, focus your thoughts. Is it something you might be amenable to? What does it entail? It's just sort of a physicalization exercise. Nothing difficult, nothing that would involve the use of religious tokens or icons. It's purely a material way of a kind of meditation, perhaps, to put it in a less religious context. That I could do. And he gets up. He turns for a moment, and then he kind of turns back. And it looks like he's kind of headed in the direction of those double doors that he came through, and he kind of motions. You follow, follow. And curate T, he leads you out through the doors. And down to a cramped, kind of candlelit back hallway. Mostly undecorated, with the exception of a few hung portraits along the wall. Simple but pleasant depictions of men and women that you don't recognize them, but they kind of have easy smiles, plain attire. They kind of reflect the simpler life that you've been surrounded by during your time along the southern coast of Antisuit. At one point, you're forced to kind of position yourself sideways to allow someone to pass coming in the opposite direction. It's Freya, the woman who received you upon your arrival, told you to wait in the sort of stained glass room. And as she passes by, her eyes kind of flicker up to meet yours. She doesn't say anything. She kind of gives you a terse little nod. She kind of shuffles along. She's sort of business-like, but sort of kind of nods to you. Moves along. And a door on the left is opened. And Curie Teague motions you inside. A smallish room. And it has the appearance of a, a vestry, somewhere for the curates to change into different religious attire, depending on the occasion but also a place for sort of private prayer or study, if desired. Something out of the sort of main portions of this house of worship. There's a pair of intricately carved, high-backed wooden chairs with comfortable-looking cushions. There's a colorful woven rug with an abstract pattern, overlapping green and yellow ovals that evoke a feeling of standing in a cornfield, kind of, this kind of circular, repeating pattern. Curie Teague closes the door behind. And he talks while he walks over to the far wall, where you see what appears to be a kind of grinding wheel. It's got a sturdy wooden frame, and it props up this iron axle, and there's like a stone wheel that you would sort of turn and to sharpen a weapon. You've seen things like this before. And there's a large metal hand crank for manual operations. You can sort of crank it while holding the blade or something, sharpen it, or grind something. This may seem a little odd in the context of faith and worship, but I find that utilizing a physical, tangible item 
is a useful reminder that the divine world affects the material one, and more importantly, the opposite. That the material world affects the divine one. Too many people fail to return to that fact, that they need us just as much as we need them. And he kneels down next to the grindstone. And he pats the floor next to him. Down. He removes his headband. A few strands of dark hair kind of fall across his face, which he pushes aside. The first thing I'd like you to do is close your eyes. Don't worry about trying to hyper-focus or achieve some kind of purity of mind right away. You can allow your thoughts to come and go. Relieve yourself of that pressure, even if the thoughts are worldly in nature, whether it's what you have to do later today, a conversation you had with someone, anything at all. And next, I want you to visualize dividing your mind into two halves. Draw a line down the middle and push them to each end. And on one side, I want you to put all of your worldly inclinations, the things that you love, the personal goals that you have, things you wish to achieve in this lifetime. And on the other side, I want you to put the things that transcend a mortal life, your service to the gods and your legacy, your sins and your sacrifices. Now take these two halves and push them further apart so there's space between them, an empty space. And in the middle, I want you to picture a tangled web of pathways. Keep your eyes closed. Roads that twist and turn seemingly at random often stopping short with dead ends and wrong ways so that you can't trace a cohesive route from one side of your mind to the other. This is a visual representation of feeling out of balance. You know it deeply, that intuitively these two things should connect, that you should be able to move freely back and forth between them, but looking at it, you, just, you can't see how that's possible. And if you would, with your eyes closed, reach out with both hands and take a hold of the grindstone. Feel the weight of it, the difficulty of turning it manually. And as you begin to rotate it, I want you to picture parts of that web of pathways turning as well. Certain roads linking up with other roads new avenues being created that start to bridge the gap between the two sides. We often have this notion that we should be able to reconcile these two parts ahead of time, and that will make the correct path clear to us. When some event has shaken us at a core level, we stand paralyzed in fear that if we take the wrong path, we will be punished for it. But you can only untangle the web by seeing where the pathways lead. And as long as you uphold your intentions of bringing these aspects of your existence together, your God or gods will sense that in you. They will allow you to walk your own path, some more reluctantly than others. 
Continue to turn the stone and watch the pathways change in your mind. Like you open up your eyes and you can take this. Can you reach that? Yeah. Continue to turn the stone and watch the pathways change in your mind. Confirm that there is indeed a way through. That way when you leave here and at some point a new path is presented to you, you will remember that above all else, you can trust yourself. And as the pathways in your mind begin to connect, fall into place, a dull, persistent warmth pulses through, like stoking the last remaining coals of a dying fire. Your palms begin to subtly sweat, and you can feel the perspiration making damp imprints on the cold stone in your hands. Each thought that passes through your mind is like another strike of flint on steel, a sort of searing, watchful eye loath to entertain notions of personal desires, and yet budging ever so slightly. You sense a power returning to you pool of energy long dormant, now scarcely but undeniably accessible. You breathe deep, and your lungs seem to fill twice as fast as normal, a mortal vessel defying the slow decay of time rather than succumbing to it. And then you hear a sound. Have you finished it by the way? No. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's hard. It's hard. Do you feel any other presence in this room right now? No. Do you? I don't know. <laughs> keep turning. And keep picturing. And as you continue to move the wheels, you do hear a sound. And you still have your eyes closed, but you can hear Curate T kind of shift on the rug, he kind of rotates around, look towards the door. And he places a hand gently on your knee for a moment. <laughs> Try to stay with your thoughts. Just remain focused. I'm sure it's just one of the other curates, docents, looking for a book or their belongings. Give me just a moment. <laughs> you can hear him kind of get up, walk over to the door. You can hear it open. And based on the sort of a little bit of shuffling, feet shuffling, things kind of jingling, moving, you can sense that there's at least one, possibly multiple people on the other side of the door that he's sort of opened up. Gentlemen, this space is usually reserved for use by the curates. Is there an emergency or something I can help you with? Can you hear another voice? I need you to step aside, Curate. We need to have a talk with that man. Well, we're in the middle of having a conversation currently. Perhaps you could wait or arrange to meet at a later time. This isn't something that can wait. And our talk bears more weight than your conversation. I'm sure you understand my meaning. 
I'm sure that I do not understand <laughs> your meaning. And what are you doing at this moment? You continue to turn. I, yeah, I mean, I did something here. Okay, great. You connected all the... Yeah. So as you sort of feel the pathways connect, again, that fire sort of starts to... As you breathe, sort of ignite and rise inside you. And at that, your eyes, like, you feel as though even you're keeping your eyes closed and turning, as soon as you kind of click the last one into place, it kind of, kind of like, shocks you back into the space of the room. You turn and you look over as this conversation's happening. And there's three men on the other side. There's one man who's sort of shorter, stocky, shaved head, stubbly beard. There's another man who has long hair down to his shoulders. He's got a white tunic kind of tucked into these nice leather pants. And one man's kind of holding his chin high, his weathered face, a cloak that looks like it's been patched and repaired many times over the years. He's standing in the center. It looks like he's the person that Carrie Teague is addressing directly. Don't recognize any of these. You don't recognize any of these. And as the sort of last line of that conversation, I'm sure that I don't understand your meaning, one of the other two men kind of leans in. And as they kind of move forward, you can see that they all have simple short swords kind of sheathed and attached at the hip. Nothing, they don't have like particularly lavish armor or anything, but they, they are armed. I still have, I have all of mine. You have all your things? <laughs> <laughs> and one of those men kind of pipes up and leans in. He's a follower of Kaluzni Curate. Do you have any idea what kind of danger he'll bring to upon us? You see Curate kind of almost move as if to block the vision between you and the men. This house of worship is open to all faiths. It is a founding principle of its existence. But it is a founding principle of my existence to protect my family and my loved ones. And that is not just a follower of Kuzni. It's a cleric. You see, Kiratik, think for a moment. You are certain of this? This is not idle gossip from the local tavern. And let me ask you this, if what you say is true, he is more powerful than you could possibly imagine, and yet you stand here with three swords and what looks like a cowhide tucked uncomfortably under your shirt for protection, does that seem wise to you? We have it on good authority that any power he possesses is limited. Step aside and allow us to use this window to expel him while we still can. He's trouble this town needs not. And if I refuse to step aside, we don't want to force our way in. The other guy kind of leans back. But you will, is the logical conclusion of that sentence. No. Mr. Ingram, and he kind of looks to the third man, who has not spoken yet. You've been uh, quiet. I imagine that's because your mind is elsewhere. Perhaps on your wife's recovery. I'm sorry that it took slightly longer than I hoped to receive the antidote I sent for, but I understand that she's feeling better. I hope that the tardiness has not diminished your trust in me. And you see the man a little kind of taken aback by the sort of personalization, and he sort of looks to the other men in the back. No, no, of course not. Yes, it's much better, thank you. 
and turns to the other man, not the central man that was sort of the main figure, he turns to the other guy that kind of piped in. And Mr. Baxter, your son's artistic talents continue to impress me. We had made tentative plans for tomorrow to continue work on a window for the guild hall. Is he still planning to come by tomorrow early in the afternoon? I have a new technique I'd like to show him. You see the man kind of uncomfortably shift a little bit. <laughs> yes. I believe he's looking forward to it, yes. And he sort of now appeals to all three of them. Hodnock is my home. This man, he gestures to you, is merely passing through. Lend me your confidence that I may facilitate his passing without incident. Despite your bravery and your steel, I am better equipped than you are. And you see the men kind of think. And they sort of are, you know, focused on an addressing team, but you see all three of the heads kind of peek into the room <laughs> a little bit and look over to you. Is there anything you do as they're looking? central man talks again. See to it that he is just passing through. And he kind of looks up over Teague. The god you serve knows nothing of compassion. But if you've any decency at all, believe us be. And he turns on his heel walks down. The other two men kind of watch him go and then turn and they follow him. Leaving just the two. You see him kind of thinking, considering what the men said before he turns back to you. And then he turns. How's that web of pathways coming along? They're right, you know. That may be true. I hate to cut our time short, but I do have a suggestion. I think you should leave this house of worship promptly and publicly. Let us mutually benefit by me showing the people of Hodnock that I am not risking their safety by harboring a stranger, and by you showing them that you can come and go peacefully and of your own volition man in control. Control sounds nice. I welcome you to come back at another time. Each morning, try that exercise with whatever you have available, a, a plate, a rock, anything you can turn in your hands. See if that starts to <clears throat> rebalance you. I look forward to hearing your impressions later on. One question. Of course. Have you ever heard of the gods to lie? Of course. The gods, like mortals, have goals, and not all of them come about it honestly. But that does not mean they cannot be reckoned with. 
not in your destiny to do so. People often have grander aspirations than are meant for them. I could have killed them. I could have killed you. I believe you when you say that. And yet you didn't more control than you think. Goodbye. He kind of comes to the edge of the door as you're walking in the opposite direction. Follow the hallway all the way down. Last door on the left will take you back into the reception hall. And once again, you traverse the sort of narrow hallway, the corridor, until you reach the end. A door on your left already open that allows you to kind of see into the area that serves as the main entrance. And the room is lined with chairs and around the perimeter, and, and there's an easel in the center that has a, a large detailed portrait of an elderly man. You understand that whoever's passing it was that they were kind of commiserating might have been this man. Again, not someone that you recognize. He's got a warm smile, unruly facial hair, his hands kind of stuffed into the pockets of his trousers. And surrounding the painting are baskets and bushels of partially eaten fruit, kind of bread, other edibles. It's a common tradition across much of Antisui to stop and share a morsel with the spirit of the deceased. Opposite from the doors leading to the outside, there's a wide lectern where Freya, who again, let you in, is currently immersed in kind of copying the contents of one book to another. Sort of writing, checking, seems to be a couple of lists that she's kind of... She's kind of dipping ink, scribbling at a measured pace. And you see, like, as she's writing, she kind of notices you out of the corner of her eye, then kind of goes back to her work. She doesn't really say anything or acknowledge. Can I see what she's writing? You'd have to get pretty close. She's like, a, a lectern is slanted, so it's not uh, like flat where you can kind of see. I just kind of regard her as I go by. She does nothing. Doesn't regard you. Head out the front door. You do so. You exit the house of worship to the rumbling of distant thunder and a pleasant view from up on the hillside. Cozy lights from cozy homes in a cozy town. You take in the air for a moment as dark clouds continue to roll in overhead. The last remaining citizens seeking refuge, seeking safety, and they are safe, almost impossibly so. The first sputtering of raindrops begin to tap against your head. A signal that it's time to return to Holland's farmstead. You take a gravel path that splits off to a dirt one, which in turn splits off into kind of just a suggestion of one, tamped down grass, broken twigs that lead you to a small grove. It's a shortcut to town that Holland had showed you some months prior, a way to kind of stay off the main roads when you don't need to pull a cart or hitch a wagon. You wouldn't be able to sort of ride through here, but you can walk through. 
Under partial cover of leaves, the dripping comes down inconsistently. You can hear it kind of rattling all around you like distant marbles across an uneven floorboard. And you walk as your feet are caked with cold mud and your wet tunic is sticking to your chest. Unfazed by such inconveniences as it fails to dampen the warmth that you now hold inside your belly. And then there's a knock at the back of your skull. And your first reaction is to look up as if possibly something falling from the trees, knocked loose by the wind and the rain. A possible confirmation lies at your feet in the form of a large pine cone. <laughs> but as you turn to examine the object, you see now that someone has been following you. Perhaps 50 feet or so away, a woman stands, clutching a hunting spear with two hands, her hair separated into thick strands that lie flat against her forehead and her neck, but still wearing the same basic vestments from the Hodnock House of Worship. Freya breathes heavily, and she takes a pair of steps towards you before she shouts up above the rain. The people of Hodnock might not know evil when they see it, but I do. And she takes another couple steps towards you. Stop. Fifteen years ago, you came to a village up near Nolan's Woods looking for a necromancer. A holy mission handed down upon you. But the necromancer didn't exist. You were lied to, duped. Still, always better safe than sorry for Kuzni, eh? Well, the good news, I suppose, is that there aren't any necromancers there anymore. Of course, there isn't anybody else, either. And she takes another couple steps towards you. Stop. A cleric of Kuzni in a weakened state is an opportunity. And though many may not know your god by name, I will know in my heart that I have done a great service for the people of Antisuyu. And at that moment, she starts to charge at you. And as she gets close, you hear a sudden kind of shrieking warble. And a large flightless bird comes careening out from between the trees to intercept her. And the two of them collide. The dark blue feathers and a prominent wedge-shaped bill, they make it quickly identifiable as an axe beak. It's a territorial, a very foul-tempered creature that responds quickly to signs of aggression, sort of her, the moving of her feet quickly against the grass and the raised weapon, and immediately sort of charged out of the trees to, to intercept her, and it knocks into her. And she goes, oof, gets fall to the ground, you can see the spear kind of move across the forest floor. And it begins to kind of peck at her as she's kind of kind of dodge out of the way as this creature continues to try and sort of bash her with its beak. What are you doing? Do you wish to live? And she's kind of, she doesn't respond to you. She's, she's, kind, of, she's kind of yelping out. Sort of, <laughs> and she doesn't say something sort of verbally as a confirmation or otherwise. Very slowly, gonna walk over to it. Okay. 
I mean, it's sort of crushing down here. You can see a couple times it connects, and you can see a little bit of the skin, sort of blood kind of coming off as she's sort of holding up an arm to defend herself against the attacks. I'm going to let it go for a little while. Okay, you do so. And again, it's basically kind of coming down every couple of seconds. How many times do you let it hit her? Four or five times. Pick one. Oh, no. Three good ones. Great. A couple big smashes come out. And you can see its head sort of jerking and moving down. And on the last one, it kind of she brings up her arm and hits her on the elbow. And you can see it kind of hit her in the elbow, and at that point she's and she holds her arm and one hand kind of up to defend her. I'm gonna kind of try to quickly like I don't know, is the thing of a neck big enough that I can grab? Yeah, I mean, it's like ostrich size. It's a okay. big bird. I'm yes. going to try to oh, like, grab, grab the thing by the neck. Give me a uh, athletics check. <sighs> Come on. Dice, man. Alright, so this is, um, these are the ones you get. Level gave. one. Yeah. yeah, level one stats. Uh, I think your athletics. Skills are mostly the same. Yeah. yeah. 22. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. She holds oh. up like one hand, sort of feebly attempting on the next strike. Just as it rears its head back, you kind of grab it around the neck. You couldn't do it in one hand, but you can kind of, yeah, you can kind of grab it like that, yeah. So you've got it, it's kind of wriggling around, and it's kind of kicking its feet up a little bit. Yeah. Um, do I have all my spell slots and stuff? Uh, you do, although it has been some time since you've attempted to use your spells, hence the uh, seeking advice of the Odd Knock House of Warship. Right. That's right. Um, <laughs> oh no, oh no. Uh, what you got for us here? I'm just gonna, okay, no. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hold the thing back and just look down at her. Okay, you do so. You, I mean, it's moving, it's, it's, you're not able to like stay still while it's moving, <laughs> but you can look down at her while you're holding it. Leave me alone. She kind of backs up a little bit. She kind of scoots back on all, like on her butt up until the point where she kind of like bumps up against a tree behind her and now she's like, you know, a little less than ten feet away from you, maybe. Leave here with your life and do not come near me again. And she sort of... She doesn't say anything to you. But she doesn't move either. She doesn't like make a break for it in the opposite direction. I will let this thing go. And she sort of scrambles to the side, and it looks like she's going to kind of dash off, but she goes down and she picks up the spear off the ground where she had dropped it before. She's kind of cradling it with one arm because one of her hands is, like, hurt. And she sort of holds it in your direction. You've wasted your efforts. I will not sing your praises. You think that I value my life so highly that I would abandon my principles. gonna let the thing, like, <gasps> shove the thing. Do you push in her. her direction? Yeah, I'm gonna okay. shove it. Kind of shove it off, and it kind of looks at you, but having been kind of grabbed and overmatched by it, it kind of backs off from you, and it turns back towards her, and it, and she this time kind of holds the spear down, and it looks like she gets the spear positioned so the bird kind of connects with it, so it kind of, but the bird also kind of crashes into her, and the two of them go kind of tumbling back, and you can see a little bit of a kind of a scuffle going back and forth as she's trying to, like, jam the spear into it, but it continues to kind of attack back at her. I'm gonna go over with my mace and try to connect with the head of the thing. With the Give me a test. 
13. 13 hits, roll for damage. Uh, three damage. Three damage. Three damage. Kind of crack it, and it hits it pretty good because it's not really looking at you. And you can see it kind of bounce off the side, and it kind of, kind of falls to the side. And it's got kind of, it already has a wound in it where she was able to stick it a little bit, and it kind of, kind of staggers back and forth. It looks at you, looks at her, and then it kind of limps off sort of down there and she seems pretty injured at this point. She sort of she has an arm that's barely in use. She's got a couple wounds along the side of her face and shoulder. And she goes kind of in a sudden jerking motion almost to like stab you with the spear. She kind of but she can't lift it and she There will be others stronger than me that will come after you. And the worst part is, the part that you will have to live with, is that they will be right to do so. I will have to live with what I have done regardless. I will have to live with it. I'm gonna reach my hand out and like, put it on her forehead. Kind of doesn't have the strength really to stop you if you do it forcefully. I'm gonna try to cast cure wounds on her. Okay. You feel that warmth in your belly before kind of move throughout your body. And you can feel the resistance to heal this person who seems so obviously opposed to your deity. And you feel the energy kind of move up your arm and then move back. But you remember the sort of connecting of the circles and the way you were able to manipulate the energy inside you. And you push it through. Go ahead and heal it. Should I roll for yeah. uh, I think it's 1d8. Uh, plus my... <sighs> Spellcasting ability modifier, which is still the same. Three hit points. Three hit points? Okay. And you, the energy kind of coming through. Again, Kuzni kind of pulling it yeah. back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't get it all out yeah. there. Um, but you heal her, and you see a couple, it doesn't sort of make her good as new, but you see a couple of the wounds kind of close, and it's now kind of a deep bruise instead of like an open gash, and she sort of feels her arm a little bit, and she's still hurt, but, you know, not incapacitated, but the inability to kind of move. And she kind of takes her head away from your hand. I have been lied to. I'm doing my best to take control of what I can. Leave me. I know I deserve to die. And I'm sure that I will. I will take comfort in that. And she gets up. She kind of gives you one last look. Limps back in the opposite direction. You make the slow trek back home. As much a home as Holland's rented cabin can really be. For the first time since arriving here, as you stand dripping just inside the door, you have the urge to personalize the space somehow. Make it work for you. You start to push the furniture to the edges of the room, making an open space in the center. 
you evenly distribute the candles along the perimeter so that the light, dim as it can be, kind of surrounds you. And you move the fruit from a large wooden bowl and place it on sort of a countertop. You take the bowl in your hands, you kind of feel it, and you rotate it back and forth. You test the weight of it. And you place it on a mantle above the fireplace. You spend the following days frequently meditating. Each exploration of the web within your mind, breathing new life into a growing pool of magical energy within you. You return to this place so frequently that it becomes borderline hibernation, and you find that in the few moments you take to leave the cabin, Holland has left baskets of foodstuffs just outside the door, sort of worried about the regularity in which you seem to be skipping meals. But despite the lack of nourishment, you don't feel weaker. Quite the opposite, in fact. And Holland has quickly learned to leave you be during your spiritual endeavors. But one morning, deep in thought, sitting cross-legged in your reorganized chamber, you hear a knock at the door. You don't respond. The knock comes again, followed by a gentle creak. As the front door is pushed inches open, and a familiar voice comes through. And at this moment, you're sort of sitting in quiet meditation, not sort of wanting to break your focus. But you hear the voice. Excuse me, sir. I know you told me not to interrupt you during your meditations or whatever. But there's somebody here to see you. And thus ends Craven's genesis oh of a peek beneath the veil. Prior to chapter one, an arranged carriage, the group had not yet found their footing as a unit in the wake of Jillian's disappearance. Before there were promised rewards, valuable leads, and handshake agreements, there were five displaced individuals, five paths yet to converge that would walk the razor's edge, of which the smallest deviation might fundamentally reshape the party as we know it. Look at the monk. <laughs> who seems to draw his power from a pool of energy locked within a toxic chakra. Does his unique body chemistry hold the answers to combating the dark sciences currently plaguing the continent? Or is he doomed to deteriorate before our very eyes, succumbing to the slow spread of his affliction? We travel back now, back before the words that define this journey were spoken, back before I am not the disappointment they think I am, back before I was left rather alone, and I intend not to have that happen to you. We travel back now to Erlen's genesis of a peak beneath the veil. Seven forbid. <laughs> Naughty. <laughs> stands an elf in a loose-fitting, textured robe that obscures much of their face. Their arms are outstretched, having just struck a blow with a sort of iron-banded quarterstaff. You lock eyes for a moment, you having checked it with your own. Seeing only in shades of gray as your dark vision guides you through a pitch-black room. 
a feet, and there's a sudden blinding flash of light that sends your pupils scrambling to adjust. The floating circles subside, and the robed figure has vanished, leaving you alone in this large underground chamber. Something between a cave and a dilapidated prison. There's crumbling walls, chunks of stone, iron bars. For one brief moment, as your vision refocuses, you can swear that you see one of the pillars shifting. A hidden assailant, perhaps? But you turn your attention, and the movement ceases. Can you recall a moment when you were proud? Do you remember what that's like? Make a dexterity saving throw. Dirty 20. Another. As this time, there's sort of a whipping sound, and it sounds like it's kind of a nunchaku flings around. You can see the chain kind of jingle as it connects with your staff. Hafi! And another flash of light. To disappoint a few people in a lifetime, that is inevitable. Make a dexterity saving throw. 21. Once again, this time you hear kind of a... And a boomerang seems to come in, and at the last second you kind of check it, and it kind of flies off to a corner of the room. To disappoint many people in a lifetime, that is regrettable. Make a dexterity saving throw. Ah, that one. There we go. And this time you hear sort of a general sliding, and you turn, but it's not quite just in time, and someone has come up behind you, and they kind of doosh, jab you in the face. You take one damage. <laughs> to disappoint everyone in a lifetime. That is deplorable. And it ends with atonement. Make a dexterity saving. Seven. Seven. Again, once you hear a kind of a whipping of a staff around it, you try to put yours up and clink, clicks you in the back of the head. Another one damage. A feet, another flash of light. And with that flash of light, the juxtaposition of the brilliance and the darkness is really starting to play tricks on your mind. It's kind of warping the vision. And out, outlines of objects start to float in and out of your periphery. You take a step forward to what you think is flat ground, only to find that it sort of is a little dip and your knee kind of buckles beneath you and you move to maintain your balance. But atonement is not redemption. Make a dexterity saving throw with disadvantage. Uh, dexterity? Yep. 15. Great. You, you hear kind of a little dart coming in and you knock it off to the side as it comes in. We do not seek to be good. For that ship has long sailed. Make a dexterity saving throw with this advantage. Oh. That one. This time, once again, you hear kind of a and it sounds like a bow was fired at you, but as it kind of connects with you, there's no tip. It's like a training arrow that has like a blunt end. So it kind of hits your ribs and oh, you take one damage, but it doesn't, you know, pierce the skin. Afi! Another flash. We rectify through practicality. Make a dexterity saving throw at this event. Uh, five. Another connection. Another one hit point. A feet. Another flash of light. If one cannot be the carpenter, 
one must be the hammer. Make another dexterity save for a disadvantage. Eleven. Eleven. Another crack. You go up this time and it seems like you got it, but it's too close to your head and it kind of hits you with your own staff. You take another one damage. A finely crafted tool can last a lifetime. Another dexterity save for a disadvantage. Nine. Nine. You, you hear another, and it looks like a sword at first, but then you see that the blade is wood. It's like a training bakken, and it kind of hits you at the side of the knee, and it buckles a little bit. A feet, another flash of light. And despite the sweat kind of dripping from your face and filling in the gaps between your knuckles, it feels as if the room is getting colder. Your breath kind of puffs out in front of you in short bursts and the edges of your ears and your toes begin to kind of sting with a latent numbness. But even the smallest defect of a tool may warrant replacement. Make another dexterity. Dismanage? Yep. They're all disadvantage. <laughs> now yeah. one. one. Another sound and you hear another one of those training arrows kind of hits you in the back of the head. You take another one down. <laughs> you have already thrown your life away. How long can you yourself stave off being discarded by the world? Dexterity is there. Nine. Nine. You hear a whoosh, there's kind of a cracking noise and a whip comes out and it whoosh, goes around your ankle and it whoosh, pulls you from out and you whoosh, fall on your face. Another one damage. That is the question that we ask you. And there's another flash of light, a feet. And with that last flash, you start to hear kind of a tone that's now vibrating in your skull, the light just kind of bearing in on you as the black light, black light flickers back and forth, kind of ringing in your ears, forcing you to kind of clench your jaw and strain your neck to lessen the pressure. We ask this as we strive for remission. Dexterity saver. that one. A boomerang boom, hits you. One damage. A feet. Flash. To be in remission is to be effective. Dexterity saving. Uh, eight. Boom, another one damage. And you kind of feel the last one, and as you're kind of looking around the objects in the room, you see a few figures that may have kind of stepped out with their weapons. They all kind of get out as they sense you kind of falling to the floor, and you kind of, your vision blurs, and you topple forward, and you can see a couple of them kind of move forward to not quite catch you as you fall, but sort of pick you up after you've fallen. <laughs> nice and your vision blurs, and you go out. You come to the feeling of cold glass upon your lips. A vaporous, cooling sensation moves up into your sinuses, down through every pathway of your lungs, dampening any sharp pains until they become dull aches. And using the front of your tunic and a hand behind your neck, you're kind of yanked into an upright, seated position. You're finally able to get your bearings. It was a healing potion that was being fed to you. You healed 2d4 plus 2 by a normal. Sweating. Yeah, it's dice is steam right now. It's like, it's bad. 
It's a little toasty in our studio for those yes. who aren't yes. already yes. aware. Very <laughs> it's a toast. <laughs> it's a toast. In addition to the strength. Yeah. Uh, what was the amount? Seven. You're outside, and as you look to the left and right, you see other adepts, similar being brought out of an unconscious state. A strong breeze and the smell of salt water comes in frequent bursts, and there's a pebble-sand mixture beneath you, just coarse enough to kind of be uncomfortable no matter what position you're seated in. It's not quite a fine grain like a true sort of beach sand. As you catch your breath, you examine the thin strip of land that you're currently occupying. Encompassed on one side by the ocean, and then on the other by an immense, perpendicular cliffside of what looks to be some kind of white limestone. And the sun reflects off the limestone quite brightly, illuminates this sort of giant white wall in front of you. And embedded in the limestone, from top to bottom, are hundreds, if not thousands, of skulls. Some human, some elves, some dwarven some tiefling, a smattering of other less common races, all kind of fitted into the rock in different spots, pretty close together. I mean, there's quite, there's quite a few of them. And they all peer out towards the sea with lifeless synchronicity, a wall of unnamed faces holding strong against the harsh coastal winds. Someone steps up onto a moderately sized boulder that's kind of just a rock that had been beached. And he addresses this group sort of stretching down. If you look kind of down to your right and left, there might be three that way, two that way. There's probably six or seven. His trousers and tunics cinch tight at the ankles and wrists to minimize the kind of billowing in the wind. And an extensive collage of wraparound neck tattoos all the way sort of from up to the base of his chin and otherwise has sort of very pale white skin. This is Master Haig, an unreadable man of about 50 years who calls himself a guidance counselor. <laughs> he holds for a moment as those administering the potions of healing kind of step away and begin to file down the shoreline, leaving you and four others lined up as a couple of the others, it looked like there were more than that, but a couple of the others kind of got up and left. They may have been more injured than the few that have remained. And he speaks out to you. You stand before block 93. You are here because you very nearly took the easy road. Some of you, and he looks around, likely felt that you were pushed down that road. Others likely felt relief as it happened. But know this, those who have earned death do not feel relief at the end. They feel anger that they could not have done more you want to die? And he kind of looks each of you in the eye as he says this. Ascend this wall. Look them in the eye. Those that came before you and who fell. Our monastery was built and continues to thrive thanks to their sacrifice. The monastery that has given you a second chance. Climb to the top and retrieve one of the banners. While you're out there beyond the edge, ask yourself the difficult questions. I'll see you there. And he turns and he immediately goes up to the wall and he starts to climb. He's like putting his hands in kind of the eye sockets and he's pulling himself up and he like he's a, clearly an expert climber. He's sort of quickly making his way up through the skulls. 
And you notice that occasionally he'll stop briefly as he's on the wall to kind of rest his head against certain ones of the skull. Seems like he mutters something, touches his head, and then he continues to climb up the wall. And you look to the adepts to the side of you. And one of them kind of looks up. There is no fucking way I'm making that climb. If I want to die, I'll do it my way. And he looks like he's kind of going to get up and walk towards where the other people went down the shoreline. You turn to the other side. And someone else kind of looking with a little more determination looks at the wall. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell these old bones on the way up that I don't know them a fucking thing. And then I'm going to walk straight to the closest port. And I'm going to leave this fucking place. And you see him kind of... And he puts his hand on the wall. He starts to climb much slower than Master Egg was able to do. What do you do? I'm going to sit there and carefully watch his progress where he's putting his hand holds. <laughs> the adept in front of you or Master Haig? Both. Okay. I want to watch what Master Haig is doing and I want to know if there's any, like, if that guy stumbles on anything. Too. He, he does a couple times, although it's very hard to tell if it's simply a matter of his climbing adequacy. Like, Master Haig a couple times will get to a point where it seems like there isn't a hold and he'll literally kind of do a little leap and grab up just his dexterous abilities. So his path seems sturdy but difficult to the one that he kind of took. Okay, um, I'm just going to keep watching as the guy tries to climb. He does so. I mean, he gets up maybe 15, 20 feet. It looks like he went, goes to grab one skull, and it kind of crumbles in his hand. And he grabs, and he's going. I mean, he's making his way up very slowly. He's sort of very steadily, slowly making the climb. He's not a great climber. Um, just me left on the beach now? Yes. Two of them have gone besides Master Egg to the wall, and it looks like the other two have kind of ditched and gone down the shoreline. Okay, I want to... I'm going to slowly stand up, sort of brush myself off a little bit. And then I'm going to go to where Master Haig started climbing, and I'm going to start climbing on the path that he took okay. taking. Give me an acrobatics check. Acrobatics. There we go. Not with this event. No, that was just cocked. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 17. 17, great. You start to make the climb. You move in a couple of the holds that you saw him, and at first it seems like he picked out a pretty good route. There's a couple sort of larger skulls that may have been kind of an orc skull or something, some of the sort of larger frame that you are able to very get a good grip into that you can literally kind of pull yourself up to and the if, next spot. If I can, if I remember any of the ones that I saw him stop at, I would also like to stop at any sure. of those. Yeah. yeah, you get up a little ways. You get up about maybe 30 feet. And you get to one of the skulls that he kind of stopped at. And it, it, there was a few around, so it's hard to tell exactly. You think you have a pretty good idea of which one it was. It looks like kind of an elven skull. I mean, it's a skull. You can't really tell features beyond the race based on the shape of it. Okay. Um, he was leaning his head forward on it? He literally touched his head to All it. All right, yeah. so I'm going to touch my head to it. Do I feel anything? You don't feel anything, okay. although you hear a little bit of whispering. Rest well, friend. Keep climbing. You get to a point where you have to make a decision. Up to your left is a small ledge that might afford you an opportunity to rest your arms. Like you literally could like stand and lean against the yeah. wall, kind of rest your arms a little bit. But it does require a small little leap to get to, like you saw Master Haig do. Alternatively, sort of right path up a little bit has a more sturdier sort of set of handholds, but no place to rest your arms, really, sort of using your arms the whole time. Which which uh, route did Master Haig take? He took the leaping one. You saw him make that Okay, great. Leap I'm going to take the, the leaping one as well. Then. I mean, I remember. Sure. At 20. <laughs> sort of steady for a moment, and you picture the leap, and you kind of go up, 
grab the thing and it kind of swings you against the wall so your nose kind of taps the edge of the wall but then as you let go of your hands you find that there's a spot where you can kind of rest your arms you begin to climb again and you get to about 80 feet now well well off the ground you hear a little bit of whistling that sounds like the wind kind of passing through the eye holes and the nose holes of these skulls the whole wall kind of you can hear the sound of the wind passing through it. And you look down to your right, and it looks like at this point you've passed the guy that you were kind of watching at the beginning. But you see that he goes up to grab another one, and once again, kind of crumbles in his hand. And he's kind of hanging a little bit, and you kind of have a decision of whether to help him or not. It doesn't look, he's not like actively falling, but it looks like he's mightily struggling to maintain his balance. Do I have to climb down to go get him? You'd have to kind of climb to the right and down, yeah. I mean, you have to backtrack a little bit. Uh, I'm going to climb down. Give me an acrobatics check with advantage because you were able to rest your arms on the ledge. Um, dirty 20. Dirty 20. You kind of shift down, and there's a part where you have to kind of place your palm down and lower yourself down, and you're, you're thankful that you kind of rested at that moment to let your arms breathe, and you reach down to kind of, yeah, I'm assuming, to grab yeah. him. And he sort of looks up, grabs him. <sighs> He's able to kind of pull himself close to the wall, and he's sort of shaking a little bit. You can kind of see his arms, and he just kind of looks. Thanks. I'll see you up there. There's a ledge to rest over there if you need it. I'll see if I can make it there. And instead of climbing up, he sort of is climbing sideways to try and get to the spot that you directed him to. And you continue to climb. Yeah. And up at about 120 feet, you get to one of the skulls, and you put your hands in to kind of grab and pull yourself up. Are there any other places where I can, like... Uh, any other skulls that I can uh, like, this meditate one. This with? is oh, like great. about oh, where he sort of got to the next one. And you grab one of the skulls, and you look at it, and you kind of peer at it. And as you're looking at it, a face kind of forms, an ethereal kind of spectral face around it. Spirit of this creature, a tiefling. And your fingers are pushing past its eyeballs and into the roof of its mouth. And at the moment, at, when you see it, you kind of are startled, and you take your hand off to kind of put it in yeah. a different spot. And it kind of speaks to you. What will you leave behind? And it kind of bears at you, and you're, you're pushed back a little bit. Give me a uh, wisdom saving throw. Uh, 12. 12. Great. So you, it sort of comes at you, and for a moment you kind of lean back, but then you realize where you are, and you hold on to the two handholds that you've got, and you close your eyes, and you wait for it to kind of quiet, and you open your eyes again, and the skull's back to normal. No face, no anything. Pull yourself back towards the cliff. And you reach what must be at least 150 feet from the ground. And you're within spitting distance of the summit. You can see what appears to be a series of wooden logs, perhaps a foot in diameter, and they're anchored down on the top side of this cliff so that they can stick out. And there's like, there's one above you, and there's probably one, you know, a couple that way, a couple that way. And you can see that uh, on the ends of them, there's a little tattered black banner flapping back and forth. Do you t- go up the cliff or do you attempt to climb to the banner? Oh, so the... You can get up to the edge of the cliff and then on top of the cliff sticking out backwards where you came is the thing. So to get to it, you can kind of get up and then, oh, and then you have to shimmy, shimmy backwards. Okay, yeah. great. I'm going to get the banner. Great. Give me an acrobatics check with advantage. Hmm. 19. 19. Grab the thing. Get closer and closer, and you shimmy your way to the end of this log. And just as you're about to kind of reach out to grab the banner, 
There's a cacophony of distant voices come swirling underneath you. Their words kind of undecipherable, but the tone a pleading one. <laughs> sort of in distress. And then there's an audible snapping noise. And the voices go silent. There's kind of a and all the voices go away. And it kind of the log that you're holding onto groans under your weight. And pulls down a little bit. And you whip your head around to look back toward the land. And Master Haig is down on one knee at the base of the beam where a thick entanglement of ropes and iron pitons are keeping it secure. So that it's been like strapped over and then nailed in so it can't fall. And he has a small hatchet in one of his hands that he had just used to snap one of the ropes, which kind of tipped the banner and the pole. And he raises his hand one more time. What do you think, Erland? Is now the time to die? And he and another rope goes flying and it creaks a little bit more as you're looking back at him. This is an honorable place. But though you will join your brothers and your sisters in Block 93, you will be buried at the bottom. And we will see your face and remember you. But after years of high tide and crashing against the rock, your bones will erode away. And he, another one goes, and it's tipping down. What do you have left to give, Erland? I'm going to grab the banner. As you do so, kind of tear it off the end. Um, can I, how, how long is the 20, 15 feet? Maybe? Okay, Less I want to, I'm going to shove the banner and I assume I'm wearing some sort of tunic. Yeah, sure. So I shove it in like a belt. Mm -hmm. And I want to like shimmy as, not all the way to the end, I want to shimmy so that I can swing and try and grab on. Okay, as you like, start to well, shimmy, he cracks another one. And it continues to bend. Tell me, Erland, what do you have left to give? Because if it's nothing, I'll let you fall. Everything. later. You find yourself standing in the administrator's hall, typically reserved for use by those of the master rank and higher, but its distance from the typical boisterousness of the training grounds and its large floor-to-ceiling windows overlook this sort of golden yellow field makes a perfect place to receive distinguished guests. You know of this room. You've probably been into it a couple times. Anytime you have sort of a, a guest of importance, the masters would receive them here in this room. You're lined up with nine others, robes recently washed, feet scrubbed. You stand in silence, as instructed, just the crackling of the fireplace on the southern wall. A round marble table with two stools placed on either end is set up in the middle of the room, an ominous stack of papers resting on its surface that looks to have writing on it, but it's not readable from where you're standing. You hear footsteps. And soon the barn-style sliding door kind of slides open, and two people enter in. The first is Master Howlett, known to you as one of the longest-tenured monks at the Abbey, but not one that you're trained with personally, sort of above a rank of working specifically with adepts, sort of administrative. His longish gray hair is parted in the middle, and it reaches to just above his shoulders, but are surprisingly broad for an otherwise kind of thin physique. And the second is a woman that you don't recognize. A human, with well-crafted leather armor, but 
adorned with a number of intricate designs etched into the shoulders and bracers. She holds her chin low to her chest, and despite the large broadsword strapped to her back, she maintains impeccable posture. The two of them move to the marble table, and though Master Howlett pulls out a stool for her, the woman politely declines to sit, instead kind of running her gaze down the line of adepts. Master Howlett pauses, waiting to see if she kind of joins him at the table, but with no movement to indicate that she will. Master Howlett takes a seat and begins to shuffle through that kind of stack of papers that was there on the table. Operative Casivo, we've assembled those who we believe to be the most viable for an extended operation. You're welcome to review their most recent fitness reports, and he starts to, like, hold up the paper, and she stops. Jillian. I'm sorry. Just Jillian today. I'm not here representing the Assembly's interests. Only my own. Oh. My apologies. I regret to inform you that many of these trainees were already reserved as potential hirelings. The assembly sent notice that someone was coming to examine them. When you arrived, I assumed it was you. I hope you understand that we cannot permit you to leave with one of those already spoken for. Of course. You may dismiss the ineligible ones. He sort of goes up to the line. Erland and Ortiz, you stay. Everyone else return to your duties. And you hear marching as they file out the door, and then the last one swings the door behind. For the remaining two, I have a detailed analysis of that won't be necessary. I trust your judgment. Who should I take? And you see as Master Howlett kind of looks you over, looks at Ortiz, and he look he looks like he kind of checks his notes a little bit to kind of look at some of the reports. Ortiz, he is more physically and mentally prepared. Ortiz it is then. Erland, you may return to your lessons and emotions to the Lord. Thank you, Master. And you leave the administrator's hall, sliding the door behind you with discipline and grace, before allowing the feelings of disappointment to crop in. Your ear is kind of hot with frustration. And you move down the corridor at an accelerated pace past the framed portraits of scripture on the walls that try to control your breathing. And just as you reach the top of the staircase that leads down into the main courtyard, you're stopped by a voice. Erland, is it? Turn around, and the woman is there, standing at the end of the hall, just outside the door, and she closes the door behind her. Sorry I couldn't take you with me. This isn't the first time I've hired from the monks, and I know how much everyone looks forward to being cleared for field work. Master Howlett is correct, however. Ortiz's reports are far more glowing than yours. I hope I can give you some small consolation, however. When the assembly comes to choose their candidates, you'll want to be at the head of the pack. And I have something I think I can help with that reaches into her pocket, and she pulls out a small glass vial with a meager pool of a thick, pale yellow liquid that oozes around on the inside as she kind of moves it around in her hand. Have you heard of my kinetic extract? 
permission to speak freely, Operative Casino. Of course. Yes, I have. Well, just a few drops of this and you'll be running circles around your peers. In the assembly, they'll pick you up faster than a phoenix's flyby. That's what I have to give you. I do not believe the masters would look favorably upon me if I... Do you do everything the masters do? I do everything the masters ask, yes. She kind of flicks it around her hands a little bit. And she looks at you. And she opens it. And a little smell kind of wafts into your nostrils that has kind of an intoxicating smell to it. Most people can't wait to try it. Enhances your abilities beyond what you thought was possible. Are you sure the assembly could use someone with a little extra ability? I'm used to being tested, Operative Casivo. <laughs> she takes the water and she screws the top back on. And thus ends Erlen's Genesis. <laughs> beneath the veil. And that is where we will take oh our my first God. break. <laughs> Wowee. <laughs> We're two Genesis in. Oh we'll get to the other three after the break. Oh, Jesus. Um, well, thank you guys for checking in, looking at the origins. We're excited to jump back into it. We'll take a little break, air out the room, get back into it. I know it's a little toasty. Thanks everybody for being with us. Um, and then we'll pick it right back up where we left off. We hope to see you guys there. Oh my god. Yeah. And we'll see what's up. Okay. See you guys there. Good job, guys. Oh, so uh, good. this break is going to be 20 minutes. We're giving a little extra time to kind of air out the room. People wash their hands and everything. Um, the middle break also, which I didn't say, is a slightly longer break that also has some sort of recap information. We'll go over that again at the longer break. But 20 minute break. We'll be back. We'll see you guys then. Okay, bye. Yeah. Wow. Cable Top Notch is made possible through the support of fellow adventurers like you. Consider subscribing to our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash tabletopnotch. The amazing thing is you can do this for free if you have an Amazon Prime account. You may also follow us on Instagram at tabletopnotch and Twitter at tabletop underscore notch. They'll have updates and announcements and some really funny stuff. If you miss an episode, venture to our YouTube channel for recaps of previous chapters. And now, back to our story. And Zoe's screaming will come back. Great. All right. We're back, everybody. Welcome back from our first planned break of our all-day marathon of the Peak the Veil. Is something wrong? Nope, I was looking at the drop frame rate ah. just to see. But I can't Looks read like it. Looks good. 0.1%. Ooh, good. Hot. Prior to chapter one, yeah. an arranged carriage, the group had not yet found their footing as a unit in the wake of Jillian's disappearance. Before there were promised rewards, valuable leads, and handshake agreements, there were five displaced individuals. Five paths yet to converge that would walk the razor's edge, of which the smallest deviation might fundamentally reshape the party as we know it. Look at the ranger. Whose unshakable moral compass is eternally at odds with her deserter past? Does the purity of her intentions provide us with a potent defense against the tides of corruption crashing down around us? Or will her convictions fail to produce results when faced with the morally gray, a color often worn by the world's toughest questions? 
We travel back now. Back before the words that define this journey were spoken. Back before either you're an imbecile or you're trying to kill us. Which one is it? Back before I protected my people. We travel back now. To Saphira's genesis of a peak beneath the veil. Too good to be truant. <laughs> The smell of tobacco hangs thick in the air. A toasted, earthy scent that pairs nicely with the atmosphere of imitation wealth. Wry smiles, smug manners, and bizarrely matching outfits like they'd all try to replicate the same portrait of a mollifer they saw once. An easy sloshing can be heard every time a waiter or a patron passes by. The 18 or so inches of water swirling about their ankles that this institution is apparently known for. If you listen close over the chatter and the laughter, you can hear those hard at work in the next room over. Coal shoveling, heating the water near to a boil before it's piped into the main lounge. The result is a steamy, smoky haze, part tavern, part bathhouse, with high counters and tall, tall stools that allow you to sit and still soak the soles of your feet. This is the red puddle. A fine establishment by the standards of Bobon, one of the small towns that falls technically under the jurisdiction of Tuktu, having sprung up from the city overflow and increased demand for trade along the Ackley River and the eastern coast. You're seated around a table with five others, three humans, an elf, and a tiefling, enjoying a reasonably competitive game of cards that, despite some hefty wagers, has maintained an air of joviality. It's participants moneyed enough to take the hit without it threatening their livelihood. Directly opposite the table from you is Fletcher Hahn, whose horns twist back almost flat against his head, resting on a thick mass of curled hair. Each ear is pierced from the top to the bottom with five or six small golden loops, and there's a high, stiff collar on his sleeveless black robe. Rumors you've followed since arriving to the continent have led you to seek an audience with Fletcher because of his access to myconid-infused hay, which he's been selling to local farmers and hunters looking to give their horses and livestock a boost in productivity. It's not much of a leap, but it's something. From what you understand, typically those who peddle in agricultural myconid products are worlds away from those who use it in a military context, but you know from this onset that it would be a slow climb up the ladder. So here you are. The game of choice is Drop the Crown, a poker variant with its own unique deck of cards and scaling odds. Don't make me use numbers. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I got you. Have no faith in me, anyone. <laughs> it's a unique, uh, it's played with a unique deck of cards and scaling odds, meaning that the more hands in a row that you win, the more the deck is stacked against you. So winning consecutive hands increases the potential payout, but it also decreases the odds of continuing to win. The current leader also has the option to, in any given round, drop the crown. It's a risky maneuver that allows players who have already folded out to re-enter the game, further diminishing your odds of winning, but a chance for a massive payday. It's a game that you're familiar with. It's very popular as a barracks downtime activity, both in Anti-Suyu and Kiiro. Currently the round has played out so that just you and Fletcher are left, with you having the opportunity to match his bet. You can't be exact. But based on the cards you've seen put before yourself, you have about a 45% chance to win the hand by making the call. 
Your hand is solid, but as the table leader, your odds have dwindled somewhat. You also have the option to drop the crown, allowing everyone back in, but your math on that is even a little fuzzier, and your chances are estimated at maybe like 15% to drop the crown and win the hand. And you see Fletcher kind of lean back and look at what's happening on the table. He looks at you from across. Well, here we are. New blood wanders in. Starts wiping the floor with all of us, and he looks around and gets a couple small laughs. But now we got ourselves a proper big pot. I can see it in Boku's face. He's just dying for you to drop that crown and let him back in on the action. Look at him. He's practically drooling. And you can see him, and he's kind of like... <laughs> so, what's it gonna be? So your three options are basically to fold out and allow him to take the hand. Match his bet and play it straight up, or drop the crown and go for the biggest possible bet. Well, I'm feeling lucky tonight, I think, boys, because I might regret it, but I think I'm going to drop the crown. Oh, and everyone kind of <laughs> sits up a little bit, and the other people who folded out of the hand, they, they get their <clears throat> cards kind of back, and they look back at them, they kind of look at what's transpired on the table. Roll me... For the first time, oh. a percentile roll. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. So roll both the percentiles and the D10 okay. as well. Oh, We have this to be, Yes, we have. Whether a 90 and a 0. Yes, okay, I rolled a 50% and a 6. What so does it mean? 56%. 56%. Ah, oh, I see. Numbers. <laughs> so. Everybody kind of comes in, you flip the cards, Fletcher flips his, a couple other people throw them in, and you look at the hands around the table, and you look at Fletcher's first, and it looks like up against Fletcher, you probably would have won the hand. But because a couple other people come in, one of the other people sitting at the table has a better hand than you, and they kind of, ho ho, reach in, and they <sighs> slide some of the winnings over to them. And Fletcher kind of leads back, oh god, fuck me twice. I thought I had that hand for sure. Yeah, well, I'm the idiot that dropped the fucking crown, so how do you think I'm feeling in this particular moment? I gotta say, I'm impressed. Not everybody willing to take a chance. Yeah, well, courage is the kindest word for stupidity, don't you think? <laughs> I like that. I'll use that somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Takes a swig of ale. So, where exactly, as he's kind of dealing out the next hand, did you say you were from? I didn't, I don't think. See, I know it's not a bone because I'd already gotten you banned from every reputable establishment. So I don't go home each night, sort of empty pockets to my family. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Healthy competition's always welcome. He looks around the table and kind of smiles. Of course, the real reason I know you're from out of town is the way you hike up your cloak when you walk around the puddle. Cool. See, people wear a wet trim as a badge of honor around here. Shows they run in certain distinguished circles. Not that I blame you. It's a very fine cloak. Cheers. And I'm gonna kinda, you know, adjust it on sure. myself. He gives it a look over. How's about a little extracurricular wager? Chance for me to leave here with a little dignity. Shoot. I deal a round of cards out to everyone. Cards on the table like it's the last round of betting, yeah? And then you can choose to either keep your end or swap with one of these lads based on only their expressions on their faces. Reading people, see? I'm good at that. And then I do the same, and we see who's <clears throat> got the best hand. If I win, I want to walk out of here with that cloak. 
best part for you is even if I win, you've taken enough money off me that it's like I bought the thing. Of course you're willing to, you're uh, able to name your price, what you want out of it. Hmm. Well, I've got to say, I like the cloak, quite attached to it, actually. But I will say, if I win, what I want is 10 minutes. I don't know what I want. Um, Maybe a bit of information. It's a nice cloak, I'd like more than a bit. How's about a introduction? An introduction? I got a friend give me the heads up that you might be whispering in my ear sometime soon. An introduction to what or whom? Kind of looks at the other people around the table. I was under the impression we sort of knew what we were talking about. <laughs> okay, fine. Let's say we do. And he kind of puts a book, dealer cards. He does so. He's dealing them out. And he sort of deals it with a little extra flourish. They're all kind of enjoying the sort of extra wager. Three cards face down to each player, and six cards face up in two rows in the center. Each player kind of quickly examines their hands for a moment, and then kind of places it against the table. And you slide the top of your cards towards you to take a peek. Two arrowheads and a green dragonfly. <laughs> it's not nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But it doesn't do a lot for you, given what's on the table. It's, okay. not, it's an okay hand, not a great hand. Rough estimation, you'd guess, maybe 30%, 35% chance to win at best. Okay. Now, like I said, you get the first move. So go ahead, take a look around, and you decide to swap or linger. And you see all the other sort of people around the table. There's, again, um, two humans and uh, an elf. That is yeah, two humans and an elf besides you at the table. So okay. you can kind of look around at them, and they're kind of all sort of waiting patiently. Okay. Who are you looking at first? Um, I'll take a look at the human first. Cool. There's two humans. One was Berku, who just dealt the okay, cards. Two humans and then there's another one, Osbert. You would know. You also kind of introduced yourself. So Berku and Osbert are the two that kind of... Okay. Who are you looking at first? Osbert. Great. You take a look at Osbert. He sits fairly still, but you can hear a little bit of light splashing, kind of like he's mm -hmm. tapping his feet in the water <laughs> beneath him. <laughs> Make an insight check. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. No. Um, nine. Nine. So he's kind of splashing his feet, and you try to think back as to whether when he was doing that he had good hands or bad hands, but you can't quite remember. It seems like it might be both, so it's hard to get a gauge on how good um, his hand is. What are you okay. looking at that? Is, do I get like one, I can't sort of perceive anything else about him? Or? No, because he's sitting pretty still just doing that one thing. They're, they're all, he's not doing anything else. So. Okay. I'll look at the other human that I found. Okay, his name. Berku. Berku. <laughs> Make an inside check. Come on, Berku. Oh, 18. 18. Berku sort of reaches over to his mug of ale. He takes a very long sip. <laughs> <laughs> and looks at you while he does so. And he examines his cards one more time before kind of spinning them underneath his finger. And you feel like you might have seen that before when he folded out from the game. You get, the, you get the impression that he has a very bad hand, and that okay. you would not want to swap with him. Who are you looking at next? Um, I'll look There's at still an elf, like and uh, 
Oh, there was three Just, humans, sorry. There's one, uh, one more human and an elf, sorry. Okay, then I'll take the elf now. <laughs> Make an inside check. Oh, 18 again! <laughs> she looks at you as you look at her, and she tilts her head. She kind of smiles, politely. She laughs a bit at the sort of discomfort of the quiet kind of oddness of the situation. And she seems to be sort of enjoying the stakes of the wager that's going on. And she looks down one extra time at her hand, but she doesn't pick it up. You get the impression that she does that when she has a very good hand. She doesn't want to keep checking it so that people know. Okay. You get the impression that he, she has a better hand than you. Okay. You can still take a look at the last person as well. Yeah, I'll take a look at the last person. Give me an insight. I'm going to get all the data I can. Listen, oh, four, I noticed nothing. <laughs> you look over at Dewey. <laughs> kind of, of course, this kind of pinches his mouth tightly together. You see his goatee kind of bristling outward as he does so. He's kind of like almost biting on his lower lip. And he sort of is covering his cards with, with two hands, but he's sitting kind of very still and awkward. He's kind of an awkward guy. It's hard to tell what that means. So you kind of look over everyone, you see all those different things, and you see Fletcher kind of waiting. So, what you got? Um, I'm gonna make eye contact with the human woman. Uh, the elven woman. The elven yes. woman. Um, and. And she kind of <laughs> slides her cards across to you. And I'll take them and Great. I wanna examine them. It looks like it's a black turtle and two horses. Very good hand. You'd estimate your chances to win at probably 75-80% based on the cards you got. And now Fletcher leans forward kind of looks around. Looks in each person's eyes. Again, he's kind of smiling a little bit as he does so. Nah. You made a mistake. They got fuck all. I'm sticking with what I got. And he slides the cards. Give me a percentile roll. Oh, ah. no. oh no! I like playing cards in D and D. Oh! Oh! Seventy-nine percent. Seventy-nine percent. That's good. Ooh, come at me! You guys both push your cards in the middle, flip them over, and everyone kind of leans forward all at the same time to like examine the cards on the table. Well, I'm officially fucking retired for the evening on. <laughs> Yeah, you were giving it away to her. I know it. He kind of looks over to the elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And he kind of takes a little piece of paper out of his pocket. And he doesn't write anything on it. Seems like he already had it. Hmm? He kind of folds it up and he hands it to you. <laughs> Tomorrow at midnight. Don't be late. I'm going to accept the paper from him and kind of nod. And Fletcher gets up and he's kind of like getting ready to go, and he flags down the barkeeper. Oh, Damien, uh, one more round for this table, eh? I was so drunk, I forget what an embarrassment I was here tonight. Gentlemen, ladies, makes his way through the bottle, kind of splashing behind. And you open the piece of paper, and it says Huffler's Orchard, which is a place that you have heard of. It's in Babone. It's a, a man has an orchard in Babone. I'm going to kind of take it and then tuck it sort of away in like my tunic or something. You do so. After staying just long enough to avoid the perception of a hurried exit, you call it a night. You spend the bulk of the next day keeping a low profile. A conversation with a local shopkeeper gets you some more detailed information to tonight's meeting spot. It's an apple orchard on the south end of town, 
a sizable lot of almost 10 acres that outsources to a number of the neighboring communities. As the sun begins to set, you amble along the road until you start to see the outline of carefully curated rows of trees, quite graceful in their symmetry, almost hypnotizing how if you kind of walk perpendicular to them, you see the rows like line up and then move off to the sides as you move along. You find a patch of trees unrelated to the orchard, a little like across the road a bit, and you climb up to a couple of low-hanging branches to settle in, decently concealed so as not to seem suspicious kind of lingering on the edge of the property, with the added bonus of possibly catching an early glimpse at if anyone other than Fletcher arrives. A couple of hours pass. It's a nearly full moon, providing a good bit of light. And down the road to the north, you see a bobbing glow heading briskly in your direction. As it creeps closer, you see the familiar figure, sleeveless black robe, Fletcher. And every 20 steps, steps or so, he'll hold his lantern up and kind of just take a look to his left or right, back down, walks along. Doesn't seem to be overly cautious, overly worried. He makes his way in. Fletcher reaches the fence on the edge of the Huffler property. He places the lantern down. He leans against one of the posts, and he takes a deck of cards kind of out of his pocket. He idly shuffles them as he waits. Um, I'm in the tree. Yeah, you're just, you're like, Am I kind of like above him? Uh, like a little bit. You're like five feet off the ground. You just kind of got up in there so you weren't in the middle of the road, like obvious to everyone. Okay. I'm just kind of going to casually drop down from the tree. <laughs> like a creep. Yeah. <laughs> and as the kind of your feet against the sort of crunching leaves, you see Fletcher as he kind of looks up and spots you. Evening. Evening. Uh, as promised, I'm here to take you on a little stroll through the orchard. I imagine my man is already waiting for me so we can get going. Hey, stay close and resist the temptation to pick the apples, saying, Mr. Huffler is already very reluctant to let us use his property. So let's not give him any reasons to give us a boot. Sure, no apples. <laughs> yeah, start to walk. I don't know exactly what you're looking for, but I doubt he has anything on his person, so no point in asking. Just be straight with him, let him know what you want, and he'll tell you whether or not he can get it, yeah? Yeah, cheers. Walk through the orchard until it becomes clear to where you're kind of heading. About 30 so or so rows of trees in, there's a light coming from above where you can make out the outline of a treehouse that spans the distance between two of the trees. Really remarkable craftsmanship that includes a large kind of main portion, a flat deck with protective ropes around the edge so you don't fall off the edge of it, and a staircase that spirals up one of the trunks you know, leading to this little treehouse. At the base of the staircase, there's a tiefling man standing guard, not heavily armed, but carrying, at least at the very least, a large knife kind of sheathed at the hip. It's not like a sword, but a blade. You see a wave of recognition wash over him as he spots Fletcher. And his expression turns from confusion, or from recognition to confusion and concern, as he sees that he's not alone. And he kind of takes a couple steps towards the both of you. You're not supposed to bring anyone. Any? I know, mate. Yeah, I know. Easy does it. I promise he's gonna want to hear this. It's a business opportunity. Yeah. 
one that he's been trying to get off the ground for some time. Up in his game, see? Now go on, step aside. If he gets hot about it, I'll tell him you tried real hard to stop us, yeah? And he kind of pushes the man aside, who kind of gets brushed out of the way, and kind of watches <laughs> you as you follow aside. Takes his post back there at the bottom. You go up the little staircase. You head up the narrow staircase and onto the deck, boots kind of confidently clomping along the boards. Fletcher heads over to the main sort of hovel, pushes the door open, a little squeak. There's a couple of oil lamps that are lit, making the space quite bright inside. But they're sitting on the floor and the room's unfurnished. It seems like maybe it was recently made, it doesn't look like it's sort of been used a lot. There isn't even really a stool to sit on. Odd, considering the amount of care that went into building it. And a human man stands inside. Already sour complexion, souring even further at the sight of an unwanted guest. He's kind of portly, but in a muscular way, a kind of body type that you see often from retired soldiers or those who spent their youth doing manual labor but have now scrapped together enough money to live a life relatively of luxury compared to them. And he takes a couple steps forward. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah, yeah. I just heard it from your man downstairs. Give me 30 seconds. I'm going to talk quickly and get right to the point. And it ends with more money. Exactly what you wanted. And you see him kind of bristle a little bit. He looks you over. He doesn't seem, you don't make a move to kind of do anything, so he waits. Get the fuck on with it so I can reject it and be done with it. Fletcher kind of leans forward. All right, look. For a while, you've been wanting to move more potent, high-quality Micronet products, yeah? And I've pushed back on it, because I know this town, and I know the demand's not there. And even if it was, they couldn't afford it. But more and more people are moving in and passing through Babon, and the neighboring towns around took to every single week. People like her, asking if I've got something a little better. So why don't we take this as a learning opportunity? Ask her what she wants, and maybe we start expanding our market as our population diversifies. You see the man kind of fuming a little bit, but understanding the potential for, you know, the business opportunity that's presented before it. And he seems to very kind of tightly lace his fingers. What are you looking for? I saw something. Um a while back, something, it was like a small vial of sorts, and I saw the man drink it and become, I mean, very powerful, I suppose, is how I describe it, and I was wondering, and I'm trying to keep it like, sure. you know. Probably making it pure. Okay. What I was wondering is, do you happen to know anyone who... I've got money. I don't think there's a lot of people, and now he kind of turns his attention to Fletcher. Even if she can, who can afford pure? And Fletcher kind of leans forward a little bit, and he kind of leans into you. Now you're looking for pure. And he kind of, to save face a little bit, I'm sure she's looking for other kinds of products as well, right? And not just, I mean, pure extract, that's 
not a lot oh, of people sure. can get that. So. Sorry, I'm I'm a little I'm a little you know uninformed. Maybe I, I just if you could tell me sort of maybe what you do have available, I'd be interested in hearing. It looks like he's going to go into his pocket, and kind of maybe take out something for his papers. But as that happens, you're interrupted by a little muffled yelp <laughs> and a gurgling noise. And you see he tightens back up and clomps over to the window and he looks out. And as he turns back around, you can see his eyes kind of widen in fury. And he pulls out a knife from the back of his belt. I knew this was bullshit. If you think it's just me and my god down there, you're in for a nasty surprise. I bring back up wherever I go. Whatever it is, it's not me. And he leans one more time out the window, and this time you hear a noise and a boom arrow sticks up into the roof of this treehouse that they fired up into the window. And you watch as he kind of shoves you and Fletcher to the room, and he kicks the door open, and he storms out. And you can hear a little bit of rustling, and a few more weapons, things firing. And as you kind of go over to the window to see what he was looking at, you can see people emerging from the sort of trees and things. A, a combination of people that were dressed similar to the way this man was dressed, and also some that are wearing kind of black cowls and hoods and masks to kind of cover their identity. It seems like there's been a kind of clash of two groups of people here that have come to fight it out in this area. Uh, give me a perception check as you're walking around. There. I'm in a mic in a gang battle right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, 14. Great. So as you kind of peek out and you're just getting a sort of good idea of what's going on at the moment, you're able to duck back just in time from something else that sails through the window. A small ceramic jar that looks to have just been lit with a piece of twine hanging off. Oh! And you don't have much time to look as the jar <laughs> smashes no, to the no. ground. And it yeah. erupts into flame around you. And you can see through the fire and the fumes the man that you were speaking with, he's like on the other side of the deck now, and he leaps off the side of the deck kind of over the rope, and you kind of lost sight of him. And for a moment, it seems like he kind of is yelling to a few people. You can hear his voice kind of echoing throughout, and you can hear the clang of more combat and more action. And now you watch as Fletcher, sort of ducking himself away from the flames, he goes over to one of the other windows. And he peers out to kind of get an idea of who's out there and what's going on. And you see a, a moment of seeing something that he can't comprehend, of, of confusion. And you hear him mutter something. Burku? And he looks out the window. And then he comes back to you. And he grabs your arm. I've got reason to believe that this has got nothing to do with you. And if I'm right, you best fucking run and not come back, yeah? Okay, yeah. And he shoves you, and he kind of pushes you in one direction, kind of over one side of the deck, and he goes in the other direction. You see him hop off the side, make his way through the grass. What are you doing? Um, I want to try to, like, get an image of what's going sure, on for a second. <laughs> Where he's going, well, too, so that's <laughs> nothing. It's quite dark. You do have dark vision. And again, you see you are not able to identify anyone's identity, but you do see clearly people dressed in two different ways sort of hashing it out. One guy's, like, literally, like, strangling one guy. Another one has stabbed another one. Like, there's a full-scale sort of skirmish okay. going on in these woods. Okay, well, is there a place that I can jump out of this treehouse? You can like... jump off the side of the deck, yeah. Okay, um, I want to try to do that without being noticed. Give me a stealth trick first. Um, 
17. Great, and now give me an acrobatics turn. Great, so okay, so you jump off the side and you do it without much noise, you land on the ground, kind of a little gentle crunch as you lightly land on the ground. But as you're kind of moving, you stumble a little bit in the orchard and you see someone kind of come out from behind a tree who's kind of heard the stumbling. And he's got a blade and he's wearing one of those black hoods and he, you know, doesn't recognize you as one of his. So he goes in for a strike. We need to. That is a 14 to hit. 14 hits. 14 hits. Stabs you with a small knife, and he goes in again for another one, and you have an opportunity to slip out or attack back. Um, you take uh, four uh, piercing damage. Oh, jeez. Um, I'm going to try to slip out. <laughs> another acrobatics check. 21! <laughs> Great. So as he goes in again, it's very dark, and he looks like he's human, actually. He's kind of judging by the lights and the figures, so it's hard for him to get a gauge, and as he goes in for another one, you kind of slip out, and he goes over the top of you, and when he looks back around, you've kind of slipped behind one of the trees, and, you're kind of, and you can hear a little bit of running and rustling around you. What are you doing? I'm going to stay still for a second sure. and wait until I hear, like, rustling, you know. Do I feel like they're moving in a certain direction? Um, like... Give me another perception check. Uh, six. It sounds like uh, you hear a little bit of a clash as two kind of behind the tree, like kind of, <clears throat> and it sounds like someone gets stabbed and then in the opposite direction. Okay, like then I'm gonna kind of sidle my way around the tree if I can. Sure, do so. Sort of take off. Right. Give me a athletics check as you make a break for. Come on, <laughs> four. Four, so as you're kind of running through, you don't know exactly where you're going, and one of the big roots of the trees, you kind of get tripped up on the root, and as that noise, you kind of hear a little <laughs> as an arrow gets fired at the sound. Make a dexterity saving throw. Oh. 21. 21. You, you, you turn around and see it coming, and you duck back, and boom, it kind of sticks in the tree, and you get yourself up. You continue to run. After narrowly escaping what was sure to be a lethal encounter, you spend the next few days barely leaving your room at the inn. With the paranoia setting in that someone might come knocking, looking for an escape from the conflict that matched your description, you decided to temporarily abandon the promising lead here, poke around neighboring towns. Going into the city proper without a genuine referral or a contact seemed like a good way to get your throat cut, so instead you play it safe and you investigate the other suburbs of Tuktu, such as Hitchka, Melmet, and Ragley. There were Mykonen products being used there, but more of the mundane goods that you've already been accustomed to for the less wealthy areas, infused but heavily diluted hay, soil, seeds, and most of it, much to your disappointment, traced back to Babon, where if it wasn't acquired from Fletcher Hahn, it was acquired by someone who knew who Fletcher Hahn was and may have gotten it from him secondhand. Even with the winnings you'd acquired, your purse shrank quickly. Loosening people's tongues and asking for favors often came with a price, and you were fast approaching a destitute stalemate. Sitting alone one night in a barn that you had asked to sleep in for the night, unable to afford the comforts of an inn, you struggled with the reality of your situation. Returning to Babone would be dangerous, yes, but you didn't desert your unit travel halfway across the world because you thought it would be easy. Without abandoning this region entirely, 
The path to the real players seemed to be through Fletcher and his connections. With renewed determination and a personal resolution to take additional safety precautions, you returned to the spot where you knew you could find the tiefling distributor, assuming he was still alive. After walking through the entrance tunnel to the red puddle, you hand over your boots to be placed in a little cubby hole behind the front desk. Steam and smoke fill your lungs once more, and a boisterous combination of music, laughter, splashing echoes through the hall. With your hood drawn, you weave amongst the crowds, this time allowing the end of your cloak to trail behind you in the warm water so as not to read a tourist. <laughs> a couple of drunkards come stumbling backward into you and issue a chuckling apology before returning to their revelry. And it's at that moment that you look up and you spot Fletcher at a table up against the far wall. He's in the middle of shuffling a deck of cards, and he freezes kind of mid-bridge, locking eyes with you. He slowly puts the card down, and he motions to the group that he's going to sit this round out. He kind of slides it over to the person next to him. And he points to his ale, sort of as a, I'm going to go get another one kind of thing. And he walks quickly up to you. And as he gets closer, you can tell that he's lost a bit of his natural vitality. He's thinner, almost gaunt in the face, and he's wearing less jewelry, fewer necklaces and earrings. And in fact, now that you've gotten a better look, he seems to be missing a sizable chunk out of his left ear entirely. Still, he masks it with a dazzling smile as he approaches. He gets close to talk at a volume without being heard. I certainly did not expect to see you in here again. Look, there's something I should tell you before we get into anything else. I don't like to drag someone's name through the mud unless they deserve it. So I'll apologize up front. That night that we got attacked in the orchard, it was organized by my friend Burke same guy was sitting to your right at the table playing cards. Some kind of fucking purity pack to keep myconid products out of the neighborhood, yeah? As if horses who can pull a bit of extra weight are ruining our neighborhoods. Anyway, there was a lot of casualties that night. My contact that you met, and Berku included, when they sent another man to reestablish the supply line, they grilled me pretty good. But I couldn't tell him it was Burke, see? It's known around town that me and Burke were mates. If they found out that I let someone involved in that shit get close, well, that's the end of me, and you can believe that. They were putting real pressure on me, and they still are. I had to give him something believable. So I gave him the description of someone I met the day before. Someone I didn't think I'd ever be seeing again. Half-elf girl with a nice silver club. Said that you orchestrated it. I'm not being funny when I say I feel like shit about it. Look, you don't have to go ducking your head everywhere you go. 99% of the people in this town could give a fuck about this drama and couldn't match your description even if I painted them a portrait. All this to say, you should just be careful about who you talk to about the products be you're looking for. Yeah, about who you ask. And also to say that I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna, like, can I kind of grab a part of his, subtly, yeah, not, I'm not yeah, gonna sure. just cause a scene. Mm -hmm. 
Who's they? When you say they, you send someone new. You fucked me on this and now you're gonna give me information. Who the fuck are they? I know, okay? I know. I owe you one. Yes, you really do. As much as you want to stomp off at this moment, you'd have every right to. But that's about the most suspicious thing you could do. So I suggest we smile, walk over to the table, play a few round of cards, enjoy a few drinks, and then be on our way, and I'll meet up with you and get you the information. Later tonight. Get me the information as in this is information that you don't already have. It comes from Tuk Tu, alright? Something bigger. I can't talk about it here. Okay, great. Let's play cards, friend. Good to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, right this way. Oh, Leads you over to the table, where you find the familiar faces of Dewey, Mafalda, and Osbert, the other people that you met. And they give you pleasant smiles, or kind of welcoming greetings. And one seat on the right side is empty, where Burku was sitting when you were last here. The seat is vacant at the moment. And a couple of them kind of come in with a couple jabs. Oh, good, someone I know can knock Fleischer down a peg, do a peg or two. Yeah, yeah, new one's doing just fine, thanks. She's just getting a nail, she'll be right back. And then you guys kind of sit at this table. And someone pulls the stool that Burku was sitting on to come join the group. Sorry about that. Didn't want to start a new game without you, Mr. Han. And returning to the stool where he once was, he watches a woman pushes through the crowd. Likely in her late 30s, early 40s, with a reddish-brown hair. Mm. And she sits tall. As she crosses her hands, you can see leather gauntlets with engravings that look like they belong to a set of armor, although she's mostly dressed in a more casual attire besides those. What's that about, that saying about when your enemies are making mistakes, continue to let them? Yeah, yeah. Everyone looking for an opportunity to pick my pocket again. Well, let's get into it. I've always been of the belief that the best opportunities, and she looks you right in the eye, are the ones that find you. And that's where we'll end. Here is Genesis of the Peak Beneath the Veil. Yeah. <laughs> Prior to chapter one, an arranged carriage. The group had not yet found their footing as a unit in the wake of Jillian's disappearance. Before there were promised rewards, valuable leads, and handshake agreements, there were five displaced individuals. Five paths yet to converge that would walk the razor's edge, of which the smallest deviation might fundamentally reshape the party as we know it. Look at the halfling, whose dauntless fortitude is undercut not by the size of her stature, but the size of her debts to society. <laughs> Does the tangibility of her material pursuits make her an undeniably reliable asset on a mission where tensions are high and emotions run hot? Or is she one better offer away from taking her loyalties elsewhere, leaving us holding the bag in our most vulnerable moments? We travel back now, back before the words that define this journey were spoken. Back before, I wouldn't say I'm proud of the way I got here, Back before, you should take a look in the mirror then, you'd see some ugly. We travel back. To Bazaar's genesis of a peak beneath the veil. My way, or the Y way. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh god. 
A few days travel south of Navikapura, a cloudless sky allows the full strength of the sun to beat down on the guards manning the wall at Leopold's garrison. A fortification constructed by the northerners during the War of Giants that served as an excellent outer defense for scouting advancements by imperial forces. However, its relative isolation, while useful during periods of conflict, made it undesirable to maintain in the years that followed, and the abandoned fort was later claimed by the Gentle Void to act as a small checkpoint and base of operations on the East Coast. A unit of volunteers originating in Aramapura is currently stationed here as a rest stop, on their way to one of the port cities, where the Gentle Void wishes to establish a security force. Oh, I lost my spot. Security force. <laughs> <laughs> to watch the goods being imported and exported from Kiira, make sure they're not being mishandled, stolen, or too closely investigated by prying eyes. Nobody would openly admit it, but it's generally understood that this is to be an extremely cushy assignment. The North has its share of dangers, but friction at the docks is typically not one of them. Regulations on goods up here is almost non-existent, especially compared to places like Oranchupa or Pachacama, and the Gentle Void has a less unsavory reputation in these towns, their presence mostly tied to labor guilds and bounty hunting. The pay is good, the beaches are breathtaking, and it's about as far as you can get from the politics of Antisuyu's most populous cities. The man in charge of the northbound Gentle Void security detail is Mohan Fowler, Mo for short, an affable half-elf and lifelong mariner who now, getting into his 60s, would prefer to make a living next to the sea instead of on it. While enjoying a more comfortable night's sleep at Leopold's garrison, the officers in charge there asked Mohan if his crew could lend a hand with a problem they've been having. Underneath the garrison is an extensive system of catacombs, and recently they've been inundated with a wave of looters stealing relics from the crypts. Now the, relics aren't being, now, the relics being stolen aren't of a particular value to the gentle void, but being robbed right from under their noses makes them appear weak, and only encourages more thieves to make an attempt. Mohan was more than happy to assist, and with the additional reinforcements, they were able to cover most of the numerous entrances and exits to the catacombs, where they caught nearly a dozen looters over a two-day period. Mr. Fowler now sits, feet up on his desk in a temporary office set aside for his use of the garrison. He removes the bandana tied at the back of his head and gives his stringy hair a tussle, enjoying some of the downtime with the person who'd become his unofficial second-in-command. Since the day that the Gentle Void volunteers had been selected, you separated yourself from the pack as one of the most capable recruits. Tough, hardworking, loyal. If Mohan had a plan of action in mind, it was often you he would run it by first to get your thoughts and suggestions. The two of you laugh and relax. A number of small crates scattered about the floor containing recovered items from would-be thieves who had attempted to pilfer the graves. Tarnished jewelry, rusted flatware, whittled sculptures, faded paintings. Nothing of tremendous value as far as you can tell. Mo reaches down and he grabs a small velvet pouch from one of the crates, kind of chuckling <laughs> and shaking his head as he holds it up. The boy that nicked these. When he turned the corner and saw three armed GVs waiting to apprehend him, I thought he was going to pass out and die right there on the spot. <laughs> saw it come over him like a play in three acts. <gasps> <laughs> uh, I mean, he was just a kid. Couldn't have been more than 13, 14 years old. There alone, as far as I could tell. 
And I'm standing there wondering, what could be so valuable to take a risk like that? There's no notable nobles buried here. I'm not going to find some hunk of sapphire that'll set you for life. You go work the docks during the day, and you steal a few ears of corn from the cornfield at night. That's what we used to do. Be smart. Make the system work for you. Anyway, I want to see what's so damn valuable. So I empty the sack, and he tips the pouch over onto the desk, and a few little stones fall out. Lightish brown in color, kind of ranging in size from a marble to a walnut. And they hit the desk with little fuzz. Rocks. Mm. A bag of rocks. <laughs> and I couldn't help but laugh. I looked that kid in the eye, and I said, You came all this way for a bag of fucking rocks? And as you would expect, it's Vintner that pipes up, smartass that he is. And he says, Well, those aren't uh, rocks, they're bazaar stones. I never heard of that. Bazaar stones, you ever heard of that? No. Well, apparently it's a hardened mass of buildup or gunk or whatever that solidifies inside your stomach. People collect them. They polish them up. It's supposed to neutralize poisons if you drop them in your drink. I said, you must be crazy if you think I'm going to drop one of these nasty chunks of slag <laughs> into what I'm drinking. That kid is going to spend years doing hard time here at the garrison because he wanted to snatch a bunch of vomit rocks. And there's a pause as Mohan kind of ruminates on this. But then something kind of catches his eye, and he reaches down, and he picks up a book, leather-bound, cover, strap holding it shut. Now, you see, this guy had the right idea, assuming he hadn't gotten caught, of course. If you're going to wade through the garbage, you got to nab something unique, something one-of-a-kind. Try and find a collector or someone that'll pay good money for it. And he tosses the book down onto the table. And he kind of looks out the window at the same time. And as the book kind of hits the table with a thud, you see a little pulse, a glowing pulse of the pages. But he doesn't notice as he's kind of distracted. <sighs> but we'll be leaving all this behind us soon. <laughs> what do you think, Bizarro? You gonna get a place near the water? Let the breeze come through? Something closer to town. Nice little cottage, just a stone's throw from the market square. I always did, uh, really like a little spot more away in my future. Mm, I find that myself. Yeah. I'm done with the water, but I find it missing it sometimes. Hmm. Little Can sh we... fishing shack. Very relaxing, huh? <laughs> That'll be nice. It's gonna be different from here on out. Unless things have changed in the north, which I don't expect they have. No. You seem to be in good shape. Well, cheers to that. It's good to have you here. Thank you. And as you're chatting, you hear a knocking at the door. Polite kind of. Come in! And entering through the door is Vitner, who he mentioned before. A human man in his twenties with a long jacket cinched tight at the waist and sharp cheekbones that bring his chin down almost to a point. Mr. Fowler, a message came in for you. Oh, Vintner, we was just uh, talking about your impressive wealth of knowledge regarding these puke models. Mm. 
they're bizarre stones, so <laughs> they're considered good luck by many of the northern communities. Well, they didn't bring that kid much luck, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the message is important in nature, so. You reading my mail now? It was suggested by the courier that I should read it as well, to make sure that the message got to you even if the letter was damaged or lost. Go on, hand it over. Comes over, hands him the thing. And he motions for Vintner. He kind of looks like he's about to read it, and then he sees that Vintner's still standing there, and he kind of... Perhaps I should be here when you read it. I don't need you hovering over my shoulder when I'm reading. Thank you, Vintner. You may find your way out. Vintner sort of hesitates for a moment. And, he leaves. and Mohan takes the letter, slowly reads it, <clears throat> allowing the contents to kind of wash over. Bad news. It's from the uh, Ackley River archives. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they. Uh, they have no record of a bizarre equippler being a registered member of the Gentle Void. And as I'm sure you know, this post was only available to registered members. I mean, that's crazy, right? It's very odd. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought so too. He puts the page down on the desk. And he reaches into his bag. And he pulls out a stack of papers which is why I had them running five more times. Oh, no. Hoping they'd missed something. Hoping they were wrong. I managed to keep it to myself up to this point. Must have gotten tired of me ducking them. You're not General Boyd, are you, Bizarre? What do you think? I think I got a lot of paperwork here that says you're not. Vintner's going to be getting back up right now as we speak. And Mohan reaches behind and he takes a small club with a leather-wrapped handle out of his bag and he stands up. I'm going to do you one last favor and then I need you to do me one. First, I need you to take this reaches onto the desk. He takes the book that he had kind of mentioned before. If you don't leave with anything, they'll know I tipped you off. This way it'll look like you were here to steal something to begin with. You should take the back staircase, go straight down to the catacomb. There's likely still some GVs patrolling down there, but your odds are better there than going out the front. And uh, now for your part, he lifts up the club and he flips it over and he holds it out to you. You gotta do it for real or it's gonna seem like I gave up easy. What do you exactly mean? He holds up the club to you. 
looked like I let you go. So you want to fight me to leave? I'd like you to fight me. You're letting me willingly just hit you? It's been a pleasure, Bizarre. Oh. I don't know if I could kill you on the spot. I'm not asking you to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't come to that. Sure. surely beat me better than you will. I understand, sir. I appreciate uh, all you've done. I can't guarantee that you're going to get out of here. I can guarantee that I will. <laughs> and he kind of stands up to his full height. And he closes his eyes. Can I take a swing? Where do you hit him? Oh. oh. I'm going to hit him. In, like the rib cage. Okay. He, he's letting you hit him, so you don't need to make an attack roll. Give okay. me an athletics check for the sort of strength of the oh. strength. Oh. Oh. Um, 21. Sort of closes his eyes, and you hold the book in one hand and the club in the other, and you look towards the door. Thunk, and you hear it kind of connect, and he. And he kind of clutches a little bit, and he sort of goes down to his knees on the boards, and he sort of rolls over. That was a good one! Oh, thank you, sir. And he sort of rolls a little bit. You think I should do one more? <laughs> and he kind of sits back up. Maybe. Oh. Um, I'm going to go for the side of the neck. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Make a nice letter. Oh my God. Hopefully it's not that bad. Oh my God. 15? 15. Take another thunk. And he kind of, he hasn't quite looked up yet. He sees it kind of coming at his face. And he, his eyes go a little wide. And he kind of like, oh, oh my God. Falls over on the floor. He's kind of crawled oh up. Oh my God. I think that's done enough. And he kind of, so. <laughs> Get out of here. And... Before I leave, I'm gonna take a look at the vomit stone. It's the bizarre stone. And, and since he said they were good luck, I'm just gonna swipe them. Sure, and he throw can't them, stop you. And throw them in that like, And just looking at me like, you never know. And then just <laughs> run out. He didn't see what happened. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. And you run out. Wow. <laughs> good to know nothing's changed. <laughs> you head out into the hallway and you turn right as he said go to the staircase. And as you descend, you can already hear the clomping of multiple pairs of boots above you making their way to Mohan's office, likely a small crowd assembled by Vintner to escort you to a cell. The steps circle down and down and down, much of it in complete darkness, until you get to the bottom where a small lamp is flickering the last traces of a bit of fuel. It gives off a pittance of light, but it's enough for you to see maybe 10 feet in front of you, which you for now, have to take, and you take it off, and you push the door open to the catacombs, where coffins and burial chambers are lining the walls as you scurry by. You've been down here before, but not from this entrance, and the appearance of the hallways is so similar that it's hard to get your bearings. 
going to have to be sort of doing it by trial and error in a race against the clock, hoping to find an unguarded exit before the Gentle Void Company starts hunting you down. You enter into the cat. Yes. Oh, oh gosh. my god. This is going to be serious dexterity on my part to not make this whole thing fall apart. That's where you enter. So it, it enters in and it takes a sharp left. Okay. And you're kind of moving down the hall. And you continue to run down the hall. Your steps kind of clopping against the stone. Take a right. And again, the sort of tombs and stones are moving by you. And you can see spots where, like, either a, a tomb has been cracked open or a chest or something where looters may have come by and tried to take something. You could see that it was a sort of problem. You put the battle cam on. I can? Yeah. Uh, yes, I should do that. Show off your work. Oh, God. <clears throat> oh, no. Why is it? Never mind. I, di- I didn't mean that. What about the <laughs> What about the mini one? Is that one working? Uh, Actually, it's... pitch black in there, and yeah. I can't see anything. Uh, no, I think I can bring it up. Really yeah, do it. Is worth it? Worth it? Yeah. Worth it. Yeah, y'all gotta see this. Did they get to see your thing? Oh, um, I don't know. No. I don't think we held it up. This was my thing from earlier. The mind temple. The inside of Graven's mind. Nah. <laughs> you don't know what's in there. Oh. We do. It's that. What if, what if this is what Erlen's been seeing? If that's GG, oh my god. It ain't GG. on her way, like, Bizarre out she just throws it into the woods. Like, ah. <laughs> there we go. I actually had a book in my backpack this whole time. Is that boxing Great, so you start to move down the hallways, and finally, you get to a point where you have to make a decision. It's a T. You can go left or right. Which way are you headed? Um... Left from going this way, so... Right, so this way. Yeah, we'll call... Uh, do I have my... Oh, do you have the red blue? Yeah, I think I do. Have fun. Directions were never my strongest suit. Say which direction. Okay, okay. okay. Here we go. So, which color direction are you headed? Yellow. Yellow. Move down the hall. Oh my god. And you see another divide. Which way are you going? And the exit. I don't know. You don't know where the exit is. Um. Well, I'm gonna do green. Green, alright. Oh, no. oh boy. You That's... get to a cross section. Oh, guys. Wonderful. Uh, Which way are you going? Yellow. Yellow. Oh, oh no. no. That was the wrong Seems place. like it's turning back towards where you came. Do you continue in that direction or do you head back? Uh, we can uh, go. Uh, Continue in the blue direction? Where is the sure. tall? Sure. Uh, now it extends out. Darn it. <laughs> I'll go and back. you can hear echoing through the halls a little bit of like, where did you, where I'm did gonna you go, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go green. Going green. Going green. You're going back? Yeah, I'm going back. Okay, so you get back to this crossroads. Yeah, where do you yeah, want to yeah, go yeah. from there? I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go crazy, gonna go red. Whoa. Crazy. Oh, mm. oh. oh dead end. She's not you get up and you and you look and there's a stone wall with a number of sort no. of uh, crypts right, in front of you. Going back. You sort of stand at the edge and you turn back around to turn around oh, and no. there's two men there, oh. arms oh, no. sort of coming up, gentle void men charging towards you. Bazora, stop! And they're sort of coming at you with weapons. And at that moment, you feel the book in your hand vibrate a little bit. And you look at it and it's glowing a little bit more. And as they're approaching you, it seems the vibration seems to get stronger, sort of sensing the impending, encroaching danger. Does it open? You can open it, yes. You uh, can literally open oh. it. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Turn it around. Oh, yes. oh. Okay. 
So inside, you find a book that's brimming with energy. There's a title page that says Romulo's Book of Contingencies, and smaller text underneath. With the right tools, one can buy time for just about anything. Only death is inevitable, and even that is, on occasion, negotiable. And inside, other than that, instead of pages, there are 24 small little compartments, tiny drawers that could be slid open, and you can see them kind of pulsing and rattling with magical energy. And you can see the men approaching, and they have, they're heavily armed much more so than you. What do you do in this moment? I'm uh, gonna pick one. Okay. And I'm gonna pick, do I just pick one? You just pick one. Number six. <gasps> Go ahead and open it. <gasps> And read the thing inside. Oh my god! Oh. Stop! It's like an advent calendar. I was gonna say that. It is literally an advent calendar. <laughs> a stream of water comes pouring out and targets the closest three creatures besides the user of the book, following by a blast of frigid air. Those targeted must take DC 20 STR saving throw. saving throw. Oh, sorry. That's saving throw or be restrained for 30 seconds. Great. You open up the compartment and whoosh, a stream of frigid energy comes out. They go, and they start to come up with their weapons, and the air hits them, and then it freezes over, and they kind of just stare at you. (laughs) 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 What do you do? Oh, um. You run by them? Yes. Great. And they kind of like try to turn (laughs) to watch you go. All right, you're back at the crossroads. Which way are you going? Green. Go with green. Oh my god. Oh, Once again, another crossroads. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm gonna go green again. Green again. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, and you get to another thing, and here again, you turn around, and a couple more guards kind of slide into view across the stone. One with kind of a bow that's sort of turning towards oh, you. No. What do you do? Uh, eleven. <laughs> you open up the book again, kind of brimming with energy. A pulse of energy erupts from the book in a wave that rapidly expands any creature. Besides me, within 30 feet, must take DC 20 dexterity saving throw or be knocked prone and be stunned for 10 seconds. Great. Fails. So, his pulse of energy goes out and he's just about to wind up his bow and he gets knocked back and he kind of stands there like dazed on the floor. And you run by him. Which way are you going? I'm gonna go yellow. You get to a crossroads. Green. Green. The hallway continues. Oh, come on, man. (laughs) And you slide to the end. At first, you don't hear anything, so you start to move your way back down. But as soon as you start to get towards the T, another couple men, one with a shield, kind of gets into view with a spear and starts to, like, hold it up towards you. Oh, 13. (laughs) It has a little pie on it. A charge of electricity zaps the user of the book oh, no. into a state of hyperactivity. You oh. take one lightning damage, and your speed is doubled <sighs> for ten seconds. Okay. Okay. So you open it and you sort of... You have against, uh, you have, I have disadvantage. No, they have disadvantage against you. Any, Any attacks, attacks against, you against you have so disadvantage. So you feel the surge. You take one lightning damage, okay. but then you start to haul it down all, and before the guy can even kind of swing, you're almost by him. He makes a disadvantage. Oh. Um... Six. No. <laughs> Doesn't it? So he like swings it and he misses you by a mile as you sort of move down the hallway. What do you do when you get to this one here? I'm gonna go. I'll go 
Red. Red. So you get back to this Ooh. one. Yeah. I'm and gonna, gonna keep go going. Red right. again. Yes. All right. Oh God, Jesus. I'm gonna go one more red. One more red. Oh. <laughs> I knew it. And once again, you get to the end, and behind you, a couple more people marching down the hallway. There she is. Four. <laughs> A solid number. Hey, you. A solid number. A violent vibration and slurping sound comes out, turning the ground into a muddy slush. Any creature besides me within 30 feet has their speed reduced to zero for one minute. Great, so you hear the ground kind of... And it turns into a mud that they sink into with their feet. And they're, like, standing, but they can't move. They're stuck in the ground with this, like, hardened mud. And you sort of work your way around. Go back. So you're back to here. Are yeah. you going this way or this that way? way? Green. Yes! Um, continues. Oh, but I sure hope so. Oh! Oh, we're at a crossroads. Um, yellow. Yellow. <gasps> oh, wait, it continues on. Sure. Oh. Okay, okay. Oh, my God. Oh, it continues forward. Oh. So you look to your right, and you can see that there's a dead end that way, but you continue forward. No! Oh, no. oh it continues. And you get to the end. (gasps) And you see a door in front. And it's a door that is already starting to be reinforced a little bit because they're trying to keep looters out of the catacomb. So they've sort of banded up this door. And you get up to it and you can see that you're going to have to pry it off. Do you wish to do so? Yes. Make an athletics (laughs) check. No, I wish to stay. (laughs) 18. 18. You go and you... Pry one of them off, and you start to go for another one. You start to hear footsteps behind you. So before you can pull this one off, you're gonna have to deal with these guys. So you, do you try to go for it, or do you use the book? I'll go for ten first. Okay. So you sort of turn around, whip open the book. A puff of soap smoke emanates from the book, and the user turns invisible for ten seconds, attacking. Casting a spell or dropping the book ends in invisibility immediately. Great. So you can see, and you can see the men approaching kind of, what the fuck? <laughs> what are you doing while you're invisible? Can I try to open the door? You can. Give me an athletics check. Twelve. Twelve. You go, <laughs> and you can't quite get it open. And now the men kind of hear that the sound is there, and they can see the metal bar getting like pulled, and they start to approach again. Can I, can I try to kick the door? You can. Give, give me uh, give me an attack roll for the kick, actually. Nine. Like a unarmed attack? Yeah, unarmed strike. Um, 23. 23. Great. You reach back and you give it a big kick and it kind of falls off and clatters to the side. Now, you are able to get to the door, but the men are like right behind you. Do you attempt to sprint for it or use one more instance of the book to try and get them off your trail? One more. 24. <laughs> The book heats up in your hands, a smell of fresh baked bread wafts up your nose. A loaf of no <laughs> bread appears inside the book, which is full of edible, as if made by the create food and water spell. The bread is bland but nourishing and spoils if uneaten after 24 hours. So you open the cart and it kind of pops into a big loaf of bread. And the guys are right behind you. Now they're close enough because that one didn't do anything to make an attack. <laughs> At least I have food for the next uh, couple days on the road. 14 to hit. No. And uh, 16 to hit. No. Now, so they go in and you kind of duck out of the way and you toss the bread at the other one. It kind of pops oh him in the face. You can t- open another one. Oh my they're right on you now, so you can try. To, you might want to use the book, otherwise you're. Yeah, I'll do 16. <laughs> okay. That was so weird and delicious. 
a charge of electricity zaps the user of the book into a state of so hyperactivity. You, you take one yeah. lightning. Yeah. So you take thing. another one lightning damage, but you feel some sort of hyperactivity. And are you making your way out? I'm gonna make my way out. So it's two attacks of opportunity, both with disadvantage because of the uh, electricity. That's a natural one. And uh, 15 to hit. Nope. Great. Cling, cling. And you move up and out of the attack. Wow. Brad. After escaping the garrison, you ride south, unsure of where to go or how to shed your wanted status. You avoid any sizable towns and cities, believing that the gentle void might be posting notices for your capture, but it's impossible to tell where you might be safe. It crosses your mind that you could catch a boat to Kiro, but the thought sits poorly with you. You bought your freedom, the freedom to live here in Antisuya. And you won't abandon that unless you've exhausted all other options. You circle around Tuktu without entering the city or any of its neighboring communities, toying with the idea of heading to the Ackley River, to the archives, to try a little bit of amending their records. You can't exactly walk through the front door, but maybe some money or a favor in the right hands could get your name onto an official document, thus making your fugitive status nothing more than a misunderstanding. Fortunately, however, you would never get that far. After crawling into a small outcropping in the hills south of Tuktu to curl up in your bedroll and spend the night, your eyes pop open at the sound of a clicking noise. Springing upright into a sitting position, you see a woman in engraved leather armor with a sword strapped to her back and a hand crossbow trained at your head. Don't bother reaching for your book of tricks. I know how to deactivate it. I put it there, after all. No sudden movements, please. Do you know who Romulo is? The man whose grave that was taken from? No. He was one of a set of brothers. Tricksters, thieves, and con men. <clears throat> After making quite a bit of coin acting as spies and impersonating officers during the war, I was hired to bring them to justice. I captured Romulo, but his brother escaped. Romulo was executed for his crimes and laid to rest under Leopold's garrison. It was my idea to put the Book of Contingencies there on his grave, made sure that it was well known he was buried with that book was one of the most, if not the most, prized possession of these two swindlers, and I believed that his brother would come back to try and take it. I made sure that the book was enchanted with a way for me to be notified, and track its position if someone opened it. But his brother never came. Many believed that he was killed at some point during the war, and I'd mostly forgotten about it until a week ago. Imagine my surprise when I tracked down the book and find that it's being transported by a halfling that matches the description of a notice put out by the gentle void. I'm no particular friend to the GV, but the reward is reasonable, and I like being owed favors. It's a shame. I admire your tenacity. At a different time and place, I imagine we could have worked well together. Mm. <laughs> But for now, and she reaches behind her and tosses a set of manacles to you at your feet. Put those on. We're going to take a little ride down the coast. 
and thus ends Bizarre's Genesis of a Peak Beneath the Veil. How many did you do? Seven. You found it pretty good. I mean, there was a lot of dead ends. So. There was a lot there. That's cool. That is awesome. So cool. I never got a gift before. <laughs> Ever? I don't think so. He notes and stuff. But yeah, notes. You got that list of Orba stuff. Yeah, not anymore. That's true. Trust me. Prior to chapter one, an arranged carriage. The group had not yet found their footing as a unit in the wake of Jillian's disappearance. Before there were promised rewards, valuable leads, and handshake agreements. There were five displaced individuals. Five paths yet to converge that would walk the razor's edge of which the smallest deviation might fundamentally reshape the party as we know it. Look at the tiefling, whose exuberance belies a hidden pursuit that has the gentle void and bounty hunters working on behalf of the halls of transmutation hot on her trail. Is it emancipation that she seeks? Or are the items in her possession emblematic of loftier goals, ones that would seem to invite danger as long as she holds them? We travel back now, back before the words that defined this journey were spoken. Back before, I do find in moments where you feel like you've lost everything, you become a better person. Back before, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> we travel back to Orba's genesis of a peak beneath the veil. One ring leads to another. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
As the board above you slides over, the first bit of light seeps in. You move to shield your eyes, but the cramped quarters of your hiding place squeeze your shoulders in a way that makes it difficult to free your arms, so you can do little more than squint and try and make out the figure above you. You get your bearings enough to see the face of a woman, unsympathetic and leathered from frequent work in the sun. Her chin juts out with a significant underbite, and her already short hair is shaved down to the skin on the left side, exposing an ovular pattern of stitching surrounding a metal plate that's been grafted to her skull. She leans down, but she doesn't offer a hand. Her rope necklace kind of dangling down has a small bushel of feathers tied at the end. That should be the last inspection before we hit the ports of Vernon Chupa, which means this is where we cast off. Get yourself ready. She disappears from sight. After a moment, she realizes sort of your cramped predicament, and she comes over and sort of reluctantly leans down. She grabs a fistful of your robe, and she yanks it with a violent motion to kind of pull your shoulders free, enough to get the mobility required to sit up. You reacquaint yourself with the cook's quarters, a tiny space off of the kitchen, just enough room for a bunk, a storage chest, and a stool. Corinna Corsi, tasked with getting you safely to the shores of Antisuyu, is already seeing herself out. She barks at you once more without looking back as she leans out of the way of hanging pots and pans. Meet me at the back of the main crew's quarters in 15 minutes. And don't go above deck. Walks away. You take a moment to check that your meager belongings are all safely tucked into your backpack before passing by the kitchen into the sleeping quarters. Dozens of hammocks swaying gently with the rhythm of the ship a number of them occupied by those resting in wait for their shift to begin. You weave your way through them, doing your best not to nudge any of the occupants, and make your way back to a cabin at the stern of the ship. There's a door kept shut by a hook and eye latch on the outside, easy enough to access. There's a bit of noise coming from inside, boots, grunting, and the rattling and squeaking of what sounds like some kind of, maybe pulley system, sort of like <laughs> recurring squeaking motion. Just to the left of the door is a stool that's been set out. Give me a perception check. <clears throat> Seven. You sit down at the stool next to the door, and you kind of lean in a little bit, but with the noise of the ship creaking and swaying, it's difficult to hear what they've, they've said. But there does seem to be two people talking back and forth. You sit here for a moment. Do you make any attempt to enter, or do you wait? It's only been a moment, right? It's been. A, it took you a couple <laughs> minutes to walk to the back of the ship, but yeah, I'm gonna try. You can try to open it. Yeah. It, it it's not locked. You can just. Mm-hmm. Right. You kind of reach out and latch. Open it up, and you see what looks to be a collection of extra rigging supplies, ropes, wires, chains, folded linen for patching or replacing sails. On the starboard side, there's a large hatch that's been opened up, and there's a pair of sturdy reinforced wooden beams that swing out to form the framework of a pulley system. Two men, one human and one elf, are red and sweating from the physical exertion, wiping their arms on their foreheads, taking swigs from their water skins. They turn and see you. You're not supposed to be in here yet. Sorry. Just wait. 
Okay. And he points kind of to the ground near the door. There isn't even a stool there. And he kind of turns, and he's having a conversation with the man next to him about you sort of not caring that you're there. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get her off this boat fast enough. Crew's already got jitters enough during inspections when we've got nothing to hide. He's sort of pulling on the wheel. And when we do have something to hide, it's supposed to be to our benefit. Can't figure how this qualifies. And he kind of looks over at you as he says that. It means nothing to me, and I'm not seeing a pay bump on either end. I continue to work, pulling the pulleys. Peter. It seems like they're lowering something down off of the ship and out the side. And you continue to wait. And soon Corinne will come marching down the aisles. She roughly jostles a few sailors awake as she passes, sort of informing them that their shift has started or that they need extra hands. As she gets closer, you can see that she has a large satchel slung over her shoulder and two hatchets on either side of a thick utility belt that looks like it could have a number of additional hooks and loops for carrying tools things. How are we looking? Rigged and ready. If we keep the chapati slow and you head due east, you should be covered for a good long while. Good. Take this down, and she sort of throws the satchel at one of them and catches it. Along with the girl, I need to write a quick note. She goes over to a desk, and she starts to scribble a little note. And one of the hands that was working there leads you over to the hatch. And looking out, you can now see that the pulley system was used to lower a cat-raped single-sail vessel into the water. A very small boat, operable by one person. Limited seaworthiness in anything but relatively calm waters. They lead you over, and one of the men holds out a rope, and he pulls it in towards the ship, and he holds it out to you. Grab this. And he kind of walks you over to the edge of this hatch. Hang on tight. Put your feet on the knot at the bottom. Use the hull to steady yourself as you go down. I'm to go down there? Yes. She gets on. Puts mm-hmm. her feet on the rope. And you can feel the kind of jostling as they kill at the rope, and it kind of drops in a few segments as you go further and further down. And you lower down slowly until your feet can touch the bottom boards. And you give one more glance upward to see the heads peeking out over the edge disappear after confirming your safe descent. For a moment, there's nothing to do but wait alone and dwarfed by the galleon next to you, now much more vigorously feeling the rocking of the ocean in such a small ship. You look out across the sparkling sea and take in the vastness of the open air, the ability to travel for miles in any direction and not be stopped by walls or wardens. Your heart rate rises in a combination of excitement and anxiety, and as you look to see that nobody else is coming to meet you, you start to fidget, a kind of antsiness setting in that makes it Hard to tell in following moments if one minute passes or ten. The uncertainty is broken by the sudden appearance of Corinne, who in one motion grabs the hanging rope, wraps a leg around it, and begins a controlled slide down the side of the rope. And lands with a heavy thud, a large paddle in her other hand that she wasn't using to hold the rope, brought down from the cabin above. Corinne tugs twice on the rope to get down beneath and signal to the men above that the ship is ready to go. 
After that, oh, that's really well. She does the same thing after untying ropes that are on both the stern and bow of the ship. She goes to the front, unties a rope, tugs twice, and they pull it up. Goes to the back, unties a rope, tugs twice, pulls it up. And then with the paddle, she pushes on the edge of the larger ship and she pushes the ship off so it gets a little bit of separation from the galley. And she adjusts the sail and the wind catches, sending the vessel lurching forward. We sail through the night. If the weather holds, we make landfall by tomorrow morning. And there, my obligation to Solandriel ends. I don't know where you're headed. And I don't want to know. So let's not use this as an opportunity to swap stories. I get you safely to the continent, then I go home. She goes back. We're working the rudder of the ship, adjusting the jib a little bit. And the wind catches. You continue to move along. The hours pass, mostly in silence. Corinne's lack of acknowledgement, hardly an unfamiliar sensation. Though you do catch her occasionally dart her eyes over to look at you. She handles the boat with strength and expertise, using fine rudder adjustments and a periodical easy swinging of the boom overhead to make the most of the shifting winds. The only breaks taken are to rummage through her satchel for some dried meats and hardtack, which she shares with you, along with a stiff, scratchy blanket as the sun falls on the horizon, lowering the air temperature significantly. When the breeze is at its most calm, Corinne folds her hands across her lap to kind of just rest her arms. But she doesn't sleep at any point in the night, pushing through to make sure that you stay firmly on course. You find it difficult to get any prolonged shut-eye, though out of pure exhaustion you drift off two or three times for what seems like it might have been an hour or so, maybe less. As the day begins to break, so do the waves that seem to be picking up momentum, carrying you towards the just-now-visible coastline an extended beach that rises up into the green hills and rolling woodlands. Corinne's breathing is heavy, and her eyes lightly bloodshot as she summons the energy to sort of make it through the final leg. The speed of your vessel is enough to kind of skip lightly off of each crest of the wave, causing the spray of the seawater to pass repeatedly across your face. I hope you're ready. Salandriel risked a lot to get you here whether you know it or not. shore gets closer at a shockingly quick pace. The details of the rocks and the trees coming into view and the ocean transitioning to a lighter shade of blue. The rocking becomes more violent as the beach careens towards you. Corinne hopping up to open two small hatches, one at the stern and one at the bow. Out of each one she takes a hefty sack that has a thick rope tied that takes considerable effort to lift some kind of gravel bag or something. And heading onto the mast, Corinne leans out over the water to kind of judge the depth, and after a minute or so moves to let out the sail, so it flutters and spills the wind, and the boat begins to decelerate. She hauls the bow anchor over the side, allowing the gentle waves to swing the ship around before tossing in the second anchor, successfully suspending the vessel from both ends. With her satchel in tow, she hops over the side of the water that's just below waist deep, and she 
holds out a hand to you. Let's go. I said I'd get you to dry land, but not quite there yet. Margaret has her bag, a pie, and she takes her hand. Right. You just splash down the water. For you, it's a little higher. She's a little taller than you. Mm -hmm. You kind of hold your bag up. You wade through the water. And Corinne allows you to kind of walk in front. She stays behind you to make sure that you don't kind of like tip over in the waves. You can hear her kind of sloshing behind you. And the water lowers to about thigh high, and then knee high, and then down to around your calves. It's getting a little easier to push your way towards the shore. The water gets to a point where, with the, sort of just around the base of your calves, you can start to take sort of higher exaggerated steps instead of wading. And at your ankles, you feel the swirling of the sand and the shells around your feet. The noise of the waves has gotten a little louder as it washes against the shore. But you can hear the sloshing behind you as Corinne follows behind. With no more than 20 to 25 feet to go, you hear a sound that goes as quickly as it comes, a metallic that rings out at a high frequency. You whip your head around to see Corinne stagger forward with one unbalanced step. The arrow from a longbow driven deep into the plate on the side of her head. And her eyes kind of defocus and she tries to, tries to kind of make a feeble attempt at grabbing it, but with the lack of depth perception, she isn't quite able to get it. And with a fluttering kind of of her eyelids, she Flashes face first into the water. You look towards the beach, where a trio of figures has emerged from their hiding spots, light brown shirts and trousers complete with cowls and face coverings exposing only their eyes. One of them is armed with a bow and a quiver, while the others hold thick rope nets with weighted ends, and they begin to charge towards the water, holding the net up high, and the other one kind of keeping their longbow drawn at you. I'm gonna run in the opposite direction. That would be towards the ocean. They are coming from the <laughs> ocean. Straight ahead of me, not like to the left or right. Uh, they are, so uh, if you're heading towards the shore, there's one kind of coming directly at you and then two kind of coming from the sides. Okay. Still the battle camera. Oh. Uh, yeah, what did I have at level one? <laughs> what spells? Hold on, sorry. <laughs> yeah, hold on, sorry. Uh, holy balls. I... How, uh... And they're not next to each other, obviously, right? Nope. They're at least 30 feet apart from each other. Okay, uh, I'm going to try to just cast Ray of Frost at one of them. Okay. Uh, let's say the one holding, one of the ones holding the net. Sure. Uh, okay. Jesus Christ. 16 to hit. That hits. Roll for damage. Okay. Oh my god, guys. Uh, four damage. Four damage. Great. So this, he, and that's the one that slows him, correct? Uh, yes. Great. So you see it go over him and he tries to push through kind of the frost. Now it's taking them a little more time to kind of get to where you are. So that one slowed down, but the other two continue towards you. So you have another chance to do another action before <clears throat> they get kind of closer to you. Or are you doing something else? Yeah, yeah, that seemed to work uh, pretty pretty good. So I'm gonna cast Ray of Frost. Uh, let's do the one that's holding the other end of the net. There, there was two separate nets. Oh, two separate yeah. nets. Okay, let's do the one that's holding the other net. Sure. <laughs> okay. 
12 to hit? 12 misses. Great. So the ray of frost goes out and it kind of skips across the water and they're upon you all of a sudden. And one of them throws his net and you can see the weights kind of spiraling out so it like extends out and it kind of comes up over you. Uh, I'm going to attack roll for this. Uh, 17 to hit. That hits. Great. So the weights kind of come down around you and you can feel it like dragging you down towards the water. Splashing. And then they get close, and you can see the one with the bow kind of keep his bow trained on you while the other one grabs, and the other guy who had a net kind of catches up, and the two of them pull you through the water towards the beach. And they get you all the way to the beach. They drag you up on. And the one with the bow goes over to Corinne's body that's kind of lapping up against the shore with the arrow sticking out of it. And he sort of goes over to her, and he pulls on something, and he rips the satchel that was over her arm that she was carrying, kind of pulls it up and takes the satchel and brings it over to you. Or brings it over to the group, though. Mm. What do you think? Worth anything? And I'm hoping their belongings might tell us that. This one first, and then we'll let up the net and look through her things. I hope it's not refugees from Kutka again. Ain't nobody paying to get them back. And they start to rifle through her bag, not your bag, Corinne's bag first. And as they're kind of rifling through, they're kind of tossing things as a blanket. There's a, you know, a couple tools, it looks like a, something that was there to patch the sail in case of an emergency. They're just poof, tossing any non-valuables out of the bag. And you look past them to the water, where Corinne's body is kind of lapping limply up against the beach. Her head tilted in a way that has the arrow kind of pointing straight up. So you can see it as a kind of marker in the sand. From, her, from your position, you can do nothing but watch the feathers of the arrow kind of tilt back and forth. Repetitive motion of the water pushing up against her. That never deviates more than 10 degrees or so in either direction. But then, even though you see no changes in the strength of the tide, the arrow tilts a little further off its axis. An unsteady hand plants itself in the turf, surf, turf, and pushes just enough to allow her sand-encrusted lips to find air up above the water. And with a kind of seizing motion, there's a spurt of water that comes dribbling out her mouth. And she lightly props herself up with one arm and she reaches to her head and she finds the arrow sort of embedded there and she gives it a little pull and you can see it kind of pull at the skin around the patch but she can't get it out and finally after kind of wincing she just lets it go and it continues to kind of stick there out of the side of her plated head. Now she's up on kind of both elbows but she's low to the ground and she looks up to where you are, sort of sand dribbling off her face the two of you make eye contact. The hunter's yet to notice with the noise of the waves covering the sputtering. And she turns her head to look back towards the boat that remains anchored 50 or so feet away. And then she turns back to you. And with labored breaths, she rises to her feet. And she quietly unloops the two hatchets from her belt. And one of the men speaks, nothing in here, and he throws the satchel. Let's take a look at the tieflings. 
and a sound is heard, a squishing sound, and the man falls forward, an axe sunk deep into the back of his head. And as the other two whip around, a second one strikes the second one in the collarbone, and that's the one holding the net on top of you. And it able, he sort of falls off enough that you're able to kind of shed the net. Yeah. And he sort of stumbles a little bit, and the last one kind of turns to see where the attack is coming from, and you see her kind of standing there, ever, sort of mid-motion of throwing the two axes, and she looks up at you, RUN! And she charges towards them, and she tackles one of the guys in the sand, and you can see the couple of them like struggling, and one of them kind of pushing her off of the other one. Their, their attention is firmly on her at this moment. Uh, and, and, and I can't... Can I get an, an eye on one of them at least to like help or anything? Get an eye on one of like them. Like a, a clear shot? Sure. Or how are they all like kind of on top of each other? Two, one of them appears that the one who kind of got hit in the head kind of fell face down. Yeah. The other two appear to be very much still alive, injured but still alive. And they're mm-hmm. kind of both wrestling, trying to like keep her at bay as she kind of goes in to grapple them. Is there a way I can position myself to cast Thunder Wave without um, hitting her? No, they're, two, they're all very close to each other. Oh, uh, okay. Jeez um, Louise, what about Color Spray? Is that uh, a Color effect? Spray is a cone, yeah. It would hit her. They're, like, almost occupying the same space, basically. Fuck. Okay. And as she continues to kind of grapple and stuff, she looks over to you. Run! Okay. I'm, I'm gonna run. I'm gonna run. <laughs> I think I should run. You untangle yourself. Yeah. And the third, sort of one of these hunters, he arms himself with a longbow that he had kind of dropped. And he sort of picks it up. And he pulls the bow, and you think like he's going to aim it towards you, but the other man is kind of grappling with Corinne, and he turns it towards her, fires the arrow, and you see it stick into her. And she continues to try and hold on to the last guy. And she picks up the axe that was on the ground that struck him, and she takes it again, and she sort of sticks it into his neck, and the two of them go toppling over. And the last one who just fired the arrow, finally sort of feeling like the threat is neutralized, he looks to you, and you can hear him start to run after you. As fast as I can. <laughs> Make an athletics check. Oh, that'll go well. <laughs> athletics minus 1, You flee through the coastal woodlands, running as fast as you possibly can and doing your best to limit the predictability of your route. You take a few odd deviations from the easiest course. And you run and you run until the pounding in your chest forces you to walk. And you walk until the aching in your legs forces you to walk. Pause travel for hours between bursts of steady hiking and breaks that get longer and longer as the day goes on, your stomach tight and your head light from the lack of food. The wooded hills show no signs of relenting. Corinne had picked out a spot she hoped was well off the beaten path, and so it was. You come across no roads, no settlements, though your pace has slowed significantly from fatigue and malnourishment, the sparse forestation offering little in the ways of opportunity for foraging. Just as the evening begins to set in, you reach a clearing, and you see for the first time since this morning another person. It takes you by surprise, having heard no indications of someone else's presence, and having done plenty of twig snapping and dry leaf crunching on your own during, during your approach that didn't seem to get his attention. Kneeling down in the grass is a middle-aged man, long, unkempt hair, his hands in his lap. There seems to be a small book or journal of some kind lying next to him, but what's on the other side commands your attention almost immediately. 
a basket full to the brim with fresh fruit, loaves of bread, cheeses, and corn. A veritable feast packed into this container that sends your belly into a fit of groans and grumbles. He shifts slightly in your direction, but his eyeline stays slightly raised, and it's more like he's turning his ear to you instead of his face. You can approach if you'd like. I don't think I've ever had a visitor on one of these trips, but that doesn't sound like an elk or an axe beak, thankfully. No, it's just a tiefling. <laughs> and he smiles, and you can see as he approaches, he never really maintains eye contact with you. Do you know someone buried here, or are you just passing through? Passing through. My brother is buried here somewhere. I don't know the exact spot. Then Come sit, <clears throat> please. Oh. Thank Any you. sort of motions. He waits to hear you kind of set beside him. Mm -hmm. During the war, there was a number of small encampments in these woods, hiding places for resistance fighters to strike out at imperial caravans traveling to Tuktu. My brother was one of them, brave and impulsive. The Empire eventually grew tired of their losses here, but wandering into the woods was fighting the rebels in their home territory. They were prone to being picked off and outmaneuvered. So instead, they formed a perimeter around the forest and had a pair of mages send waves of necrotic energy through the trees. The soldiers could avoid the magic and wait for it to dissipate, but the animals and the vegetation were dying, which meant they were quickly faced with the prospect of starvation. That's why these woodlands are relatively thin and unpopulated. It's taken a long time for life to creep back in. My brother's unit discussed making a final charge at the Imperials before they succumbed to famine. But my brother convinced them otherwise. They all knew it was a suicide run, but he pointed out that the longer they could keep the mages here, the longer they couldn't move on to reinforce the Imperial lines somewhere else. And so they stayed. And they slowly starved. Since it's been safe to do so, each year I bring a basket of food to this forest. I have someone drop me off nearby and I wander. Though I always feel I'm drawn to the same spot for whatever reason. I can't be sure of that, but if I could see all the places I've been drawn to over the years, I'm sure I'd find it was just a trick of the mind. He sort of feels for the basket next to him. He picks it up and he puts it in his lap, and he grabs something from it. This food is symbolic in nature. No need to let it go to waste when there are hungry among us. Thank you very much. Your stomach growls repeatedly, and here I am telling you my life story. I hope my stomach didn't interrupt your lovely story. The bodies were buried without markers by other soldiers many years ago. I only wish that I had recovered his necklace. Our father passed it down to us, two parts of the same hole, and he kind of holds out a necklace on his neck that looks like, you don't recognize the symbol, but it looks like it has a kind of jagged edge that two pieces would fit together. Though never confirmed, he believed it was magic. I wish that I could pass it on to his daughter, but perhaps someday I'll just give her mine. Um. 
Would you like to try something with me? All right. Um, I take out my crystal, like put my stuff down, get settled. Um, well, I'm a little new at this, but I could always try to detect the necklace in the ground. You're welcome to do so. I won't know if you fail. I'll tell you. Um, I, I might have to cast it ritually. I don't remember if it was equipped or not, but I'll cast. Take the time to do so. Detect magic. <clears throat> you sort of look around. At first, you see the necklace around his neck, and it glows with a little bit of magic. It seems like it's of the divination school of magic, sort of protection prayer. And you look around this clearing. You don't see anything at first. Take a couple steps in one direction, a couple steps another way. And then you see a dull glow just underneath the ground, no more than two to three feet below the surface. I'll, like, give him, like, a pat on the shoulder or something. (laughs) One second, hold on. I'm going to scurry over. And he just waits there. I mean, you can tell by kind of the expression on his face. He's happy to let you try, but he didn't think it would yield any results necessarily. I'm going to go and just put my face right up to the dirt mm-hmm. and just take a look for a second. The dirt? There's glow. It seems Where like... the glowing is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same color as the The dirt's necklace? the same color? No, the glowing is the same the color. The glowing is the, the same color, color. yes. Um, I'm just going to take my hands. I'm filthy anyway, so I'm just going like, <laughs> to start to dig. You pre- dig through. Preparing to see a body. And you dig a little bit. <laughs> You do find some bones that start to around your fingers. But you dig a little more, a little more, and you kind of push aside a pile of dirt, and there's a little piece of metal shining in the ground. You reach in and you kind of pull it loose carefully, moving some of the dirt off of it. And you hold it in your hand. It seems to be the other half of the man's necklace. Okay, big smile comes across my face. Uh, I'll... I'll run over. He's sitting, sort of waiting. He could hear you digging, but... Um, hold out your hand, my friend. I'm just gonna chain first, like, have the chain fall, and then plop the charm down. And he feels it, and you can see at first, as he feels the chain, he sort of, you can already see him shaking his head as if, you know... He might be duped or something to that effect, something you already had on your person. And he kind of feels the outline of the, of the pendant. And he holds it up and he connects the two pieces of his necklace. And a wave of air washes over you like a hot breath, materializing all around you in this clearing are ghostly white spectral forms of men and women their bodies almost emaciated, with thin limbs and sunken eyes. And as they continue to come into focus, you see a small group of them gathered around his basket, and they're reaching in, and they grab, and they're not actually physically picking up the food, but they pick it up, and there's like a spectral apple piece of bread, and they pick it up, and they start to bite pieces out of it. And you can hear him kind of putting the pieces of his necklace together, and he's kind of looking around, and he, can, he can't see, obviously, but he can sense that something's happening around him. What's happening? 
think you have people taking advantage of your food. Do any of them look like me? I'll take a good hard look Give around. Me a perception check. Oh, oh, oh why? Oh my god. Yep, nine. You kind of move around a little bit, trying to see if anyone even has sharing features, anything. There's quite a few of them, so it takes you some time to kind of look through and past, and you can see after he hasn't heard from you in a while, he kind of, he's sort of sunken shoulders, sort of losing hope a little bit. I'll walk up to him again really quick. Mm -hmm. Did your brother have like a favorite food? Biscuits, and he sort of reaches down into his basket and takes out a couple. I'll take it, and I'll just kind of wander, like baiting <laughs> the ghosts. You do so. Okay. And at a moment, a couple ghosts, kind of who are wandering around, kind of see it, and they part a little bit, and another one walks forward. Looks very similar. And he walks up, and he kind of reaches out, and he grabs them, and again, he's not physically taking them from you, but he takes these sort of spectral goodies. He begins to eat them. Oh, uh, like over my shoulder. I think I see him. Uh, can you show him something? And he sort of touches down and he picks up what looks like it's a book of like sketches and drawings. And he holds it up and he's, and he's could you um, direct me to him? Yes. And you sort of position yourself towards him. Yeah. And he holds it up, and you can see with the biscuits, he's still like eating them. He walks over and he looks at the book, and the man is like turning the pages, and there's a number of sketches and drawings. Your your daughter made these. Is he looking? Is he looking? Yes, he's looking, he's looking. And he continues to turn the pages. And the brother just kind of watches, and he watches the page. You can see the drawings. It seemed like it's a sort of from a younger age to a to a older age. You can see the drawings get better as he flips through the pages. And he sort of waits, and he just holds the book there. And he sort of you can sense that he feels a connection there, even without sort of being able to know. Thank you for this. Is he still there? He is. Yeah. I'd like to stay with him for the night, I think. But I want to show you my thanks. Um, and he turns. Do, do you see that uh, there should be a, a length of rope somewhere on the ground over there? search. And there is. And it looks like it kind of weaves through the woods out to the back. I use those to uh, help me find my way back to the road. If you follow them, you'll come across a carriage with no horse. My friend who drops me off here, he unhitches the horse, and he rides to the nearby town of Hodnock. He then comes to pick me up in the morning, and normally after paying my respects, I spend the night in the carriage. It's quite cozy, but I think I'd like to stay here, so I'd like you to have a good night's rest and a good meal, and he sort of holds up the remainder of the basket towards you. Mm -hmm. I know it isn't much, but if you find yourself in Fravrach, and that's a place outside of Aramapuri, you've heard of it, it's not a tiny place. Ask for directions to the Macy household. 
I'd be happy to give you more. Thank you. This is actually quite a bounty, so I appreciate it. <clears throat> You'll have to set off early in the morning so my friend doesn't discover you and <laughs> think you a squatter. That's fine. I'm an early riser. Thank you. Did I catch your name, friend? Sherman. Sherman. Sherman Macy. Sherman... Um, thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, enjoy your time. And he sits back there, he kind of sits cross-legged on the ground, still with the book. And in, like, simultaneously, his brother's ghost, like, sits cross-legged across from him so he can keep, like, watching the pages turn, sort of, from the other side. Okay. I'll start to go, but I'll carry the basket slowly in case anybody else wants anything for <laughs> A couple of them, as you're walking by, kind of grab one out, but again, they don't really remove it from yeah. the basket. You follow the ropes in a northerly direction, leaving Sherman to sit among the spirits for the night. It strikes you how far he was willing to travel off the road to arrive at the spot that supposedly called to him, and you're impressed at the number of ropes he needed to carry. It looks like he had to go all the way out and then go back, get another rope, and follow it out so he could, you know, find his way back without getting lost. One more small crest of a hill and you spot it, a modest but well-maintained with an empty yoke and a bare-bones wooden design to keep it light enough for one horse travel. It's been pulled off the road quite a bit to avoid interference and the temptation of theft, but you can see where the tree line stops and a path of dirt and gravel runs perpendicular to your current course, where the road presumably is. You reach the carriage and flip a wooden lever that allows it to open, revealing an intimate, cushioned interior with a pair of soft pillows and a thick fur blanket. Immediately upon entering the carriage, you let your muscles go of the tension they've been carrying. <sighs> and a wave of exhaustion overwhelms you, senses a time to fully stop. You fall asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow, your first night's rest in a new world. You wake to the sounds of stomping hooves and wheels turning, and you bolt upright, and there's kind of a jolt of panic thinking that you overslept. But the carriage remains, and you see no one approaching. The sounds of other travelers, more distant than you thought. It seems like something was just moving along the path. You remember what Sherman said about Hodnock Village being relatively near to the east. So you figure that you'll head in that direction, with the hopes that someone might be able to guide you where you're headed. Or better yet, offer you a lift. As you walk along the road, your energy and enthusiasm returns to you, an entirely unfamiliar feeling of freedom as you're caught up in your thoughts. You start to hum and mutter excitedly as you move down the path, starting at first in a purposeful straight line, but you allow yourself to kind of meander back and forth a bit, enjoying the journey as it comes to you. You snap to attention at the sound of a voice, and you look up to see a large wagon headed in your direction that seems to have pulled up to avoid trampling you, a scuffling of hooves. You look down, and in your absent-mindedness, you've made it difficult to allow for passing traffic. You're kind of right in the middle of the road. And seated at the front of this wagon, on the driver's seat, are the annoyed faces of a portly gnome and a human woman in leather armor, who sits tall and holds her hand high in the air. Hold there! Tiefling! You should be mindful of your surroundings, especially traveling alone wander like that as you get to the high Midland Hills, and you're likely to tumble to your death. Sorry. 
that is where Orba's Genesis of a Pink Beneath the Veil ends. Ta. When we return, <laughs> we will return to the main campaign. Oh my god. Having taken a little look at how everybody got together oh, in the first yes. place, we will return to the campaign proper. We would like to say that during this longer break, which we'll grab a little bite to eat and then return, we've assembled a series of videos that recap basically just where we left off, all the way to the point of the campaign as it stands right now. Um, there's videos that are sort of written as the form of letters from each of our players. Graven's the first one, he covers the first, what is it, eight, eight. chapters or so, yep. And then in order of their appearance, Erlen, Sephira, Bizarra, Orba, the, it continues, and you can sort of get a feel for um, where we were at in the campaign, some of the major events and things. It's a great, it's a fun little video, a little voiceover, a little letter. Um, thank you guys for being patient through other people's yeah. um, um, genesis. It was fun to take a look at everybody's, uh, yeah. where they came from. Jesus Christ. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Yay. When we come back, we will get into the real deal. Oh, oh my God. Chapter 41. Oh, we will see you guys there, hopefully. Um, hoping you're enjoying the show, and we will see you on the other side. Please enjoy the video. Thank yeah. you guys so much. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Peek Beneath the Veil on Tabletop Notch. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend or leave us a nice review on the podcast app of your choice? There is always room in our party for more adventurers, despite what Kuzni may think. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and as my friends the Ackley Elves like to say, your presence is a gift.